and gentlemen, and people who don't believe in uh, gender binary, this is the Directors Club Podcast. We're back. We're back. This is Yay. me. Patrick this is me. That's Jim. I know. This is crazy, right? Wow. It's been so long. I know. It's been a while, and uh, I'm very happy to return, and uh, we got a very special guest, as always, on the show. Um, he was quite uh, memorable on a very, very uh, infamous episode featuring our conversation on director Brian De Palma. That's right. So, yes, heck of an episode, very memorable indeed. We couldn't be happier to welcome back Peter Subchinsky to the show. Hi, Peter. Thanks for being on the show again. No problem. Very excited to have you on to talk about director Mike Nichols. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting in person at the uh, Chicago Film Critics Festival, which was really successful. Um, great turnout for that event, and looking forward to attending uh, this year's as well. Yeah, and I got to alienate William Friedkin on stage. <laughs> yes, I, that was very memorable indeed. Uh, Why, did you mention sh- Jade? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I brought up the Exorcist sequels. Oh, that's right, yeah. He's not a fan, what? but he told a really great story, though, yeah. about Exorcist 2. See, what would have really gotten him upset is if I told him that, you know, I act... It, my, my, in my own perverted way, I actually pervert Exorcist 2 to Exorcist 1, quite frankly, but... You and Scorsese. Well, two peas in a pod, I guess. Hmm. There you go. Yeah, and also speaking of Brian De Palma, you're one of the uh, um, few defenders, I hear, of the of his latest film, Passion. Oh, there are the other defenders. It's not yeah, I, from, what I, from what I've heard, the people who are into Brian De Palma are into Passion. Really? Okay. Yeah, well, I guess. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've been, I've been hearing mixed things, but uh, you know, as a De Palma fan, I'm, I'm curious about it. So, Jim. More probably, importantly, you you were in Grand Rapids. <laughs> that's nuts. What are you up to? Oh my God, that's right. I moved. That's crazy. I completely forgot. Yeah. yeah you're far uh, away. I, I relocated to uh, Grand Rapids, and uh, very happy here. Um, it's beautiful. It's known as the uh, Portland of Michigan. There's lots of <laughs> there's lots of craft breweries around, and great coffee, and amazing food everywhere you go. A uh, lot of farmers markets, and uh, you know, just a, it's a nice balance between the kind of environment I grew up in, where it's kind of like uh, very naturey, and there's a lot of forest preserves, but it still still has that nice sort of Logan Square feel to it because there's a lot of, you know, um, arts-type programs and things like that going on. So uh, it's actually um, ideal for me at this point and couldn't be happier here. Um, But, of course, I miss my dear old friend Patrick, and we're sort of going to be doing these shows through Skype and possibly Google Hangouts from now on. But, you know, we, we had a successful, you know, short run of doing this on Skype before, so... Hopefully uh, things will go smoothly, and uh, you know I'll, I'll be back in the city once in a blue moon. So hopefully I can uh, you know do one of these recordings live again. So. But anyway, how feel like, is this the lure of the place that gave us hardcore? Oh, is it is does hardcore? I think hardcore at the, least begins in Grand Rapids. Hmm. With George hmm. Scott and his family, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Wow, I need to rewatch that one. I'm quite the fan of when George C. Scott turns into the Hulk. 
towards the end. Rakan! <laughs> Rakan! Man, he, when he starts watching the the uh, the porn, oh my god, he just like, SHUT IT UP! <laughs> so yeah, uh, things are good. Things are good. How about you, Patrick? What you been up to during the hiatus? Oh, not much. Unemployed. Unemployed, which is Oh, fun. no! Yeah, so uh, haven't been out to the theater too often. <laughs> Um, though I will say, uh, I did have a, a movie-related victory recently that I'm super proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the movie Big Night, the uh, Stanley Tucci, Tony Shalhoub movie from 1996. And uh, the other night, I made a timpano. Wow. Yeah. Me and a lady That's friend. Ambitious. Me and a lady friend, we sat down. It took five and a half hours from 5 p.m. to 10.30. We cranked out a timpano. We made our own sauce. We made... We crushed ourselves, we rolled out that dough, we made those meatballs, everything. It was, and it's amazing. It's so worth it. It was so good. After the uh, end of the meal, did you just put your arm around her in silence, didn't say anything? Where'd you go? Uh, Well, I just actually, I slammed my silverware down and I said, you son of a bitch! (laughs) (laughs) Like like Ian Holmes in that movie. Um, Yeah. So So good. Yeah, so I, I made a timpano, and I feel like I, I just ha- I kind of have a victory over over life now. I you, you don't you don't need to be employed when you've made a timpano. You have a timpano in your past. That's great. I'm proud of you, man. I I'm proud you're of the most you too. Amb- ambitious cook in the world. So no, it was mo- it was it was mostly uh, it was mostly my lady friend Sarah, but uh, I certainly helped. Nice. I made the meatballs and cooked them up and everything. Yum. Rolled out the dough. So let's see. Other than that, yeah, uh, a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking. That's good, as long as you don't turn into <laughs> Mickey Rourke. <laughs> Just don't turn into oh. Mickey Rourke in uh, Barfly. Just, uh, so if you turn you know. into Mickey Rourke in Harley Davidson Marlboro Man, that'd be awesome. Well, yeah, clearly. I turned, I turned into, uh, the other night I turned into Mickey Rourke from Sin City, but that was because I had half a handle of gin. So, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Fought off a lot of cops, um, but uh, no, I'm really excited to be doing this again. Um, Me too. And uh, what an interesting director to be covering, Mike Nichols. Yeah, um, man, he's he's had quite the filmography. Very very diverse. Very interesting. Um, you know, he's he's kind of a you know this miner of truth and pathos, sort of filtered through the very biting sense of humor. He makes kind of like these tragic comedies, if you will, at times. But they they're really great. Um, we're going to be talking about two films that um, I, were controversial at the time of the release: uh, Catch Twenty Two and Carnal Knowledge. That's right. We're avoiding uh, his. Probably more AFI top 100 friendly films like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate. Um, but yeah. I, think, I think these films will actually have a lot more interesting things to say. And The Graduate Indeed. sucks eggs. <laughs> I was just rereading uh, the thing Ebert wrote in 97 on the 30th anniversary of The Graduate where he did a complete 180 on it. Yeah, uh, he raved about it when it first came out, and I actually just posted that to the blog. So go over to directorsclubpodcast.com, check that out. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I, I didn't get to finish The Graduate, uh, I didn't, I swear, I started watching it today, like, about the first 45 minutes, and man, I can't agree more with Ebert, Benjamin is a real wet blanket, just a total snooze. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know. That's that's. It's funny. I had the same reaction when I first saw it. I really, really liked it, and as I've rewatched it, I'm kind of liking it less and less as time goes on. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of I do like about it, but I just don't think it's this, you know, uh, masterpiece that most people do. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't go as far as to say it sucks eggs. Uh, such harsh. No. Well, okay, may, maybe an extreme. I mean, there's there's some good stuff. I mean, like Anne Bancroft was really good in it. Um, sure. And the, the you know the soundtrack is, ob- is obviously really good. But it, you know, for me, it's just one of those things where like every almost everyone except for her basically is kind of like this caricature, and it just gets kind of. It, I just have always found it to be kind of like smug and, and irritating after a while. Yeah, I would agree with that. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, Mike, you know, for me, Mike Nichols is, I mean, he's an interesting film. I mean, obviously he's a stage director. I mean, you know, yeah. with, without compare. On film, you know, with, with film, uh, as you go through his entire, you know, filmography, uh, it, it, it's a pretty varied thing. Because I, I, the thing is that, you know, and it's weird because obviously he started off, you know, like, you know, being one of the, four, you know, the, the founders of Second City and doing his improv with Elaine May and all that. But with mm-hmm. it, what's weird is that, you know, so with that, he would just, like, make stuff up out of thin air and create these incredible things. But as a director, he's one of these people who he re- I mean, he could be a great filmmaker, but he really needs to have, like, the great piece of material on him. He's not one of these directors who can take, like, a piece of material that, that does, that, 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 that may be uneven and sort of, like, transform it in the way, and in the way that, like, some great filmmakers can. Um, he needs to have, like, a really strong piece of material or, the, the the results can be you know can can wind up being pretty dire as anyone who's still regarding Henry can attest. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Written by J.J. Yeah, Abrams, it, all people. Exactly. It's so, like every time you know someone keeps talking about like you know how much of a god J.J. Abrams is. I always like to bring up. Remember that? Remember that movie where Harrison Ford gets shot in the head and turns into a lovable regret that everyone you know thinks is adorable. Oh, and he also wrote uh, Forever Young with Mel Gibson and Jamie Lee Curtis. Taking <laughs> taking care of business with Jim Belushi. Oh God! <laughs> wow, I forgot about that one. Did my, well, uh, yeah, let's face it. You know, Touchstone, the late late eighties, early nineties. It was oh, it was a glorious time. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like, so like Mike Nichols. I mean, he's made some like wonderful films, and then he's made some movies. And the other hand, he's also made some movies that are, are, that are so bad that you just sit there and think, you know, how could. You know, you, you, you're just kind of, like, baffled as to what he could have possibly been thinking or anyone involved with him could have been thinking when they when they, when they they sat down and thought, hey, let's make this movie. Are you telling me that you don't find Day of the Dolphin to be the most touching father-son story ever told about a man uh, and a weird talking porpoise? <laughs> let's just say I would have liked it better had the original... I would have liked it better if the original director had done it. Or the guy who was originally hired to direct it. Who was... Polanski, Polanski, right? Yeah. Polanski yeah. was supposed to do it, and I guess he realized that it wasn't going to work, and he couldn't figure out a way of doing the fish thing. And I guess the only reason Mike Nichols did it was because I guess he, uh, the the contract that he had with uh, Joseph Levine, who was the guy who produced um, The Graduate and Carnal Knowledge, he had like he owed him one more film, and that's what he wound up doing. Just again, so he basically did that just to get out of his contract. And yeah, and, I, yeah. I, I think Polanski. I think Polanski dropped out because that was around the time that Sharon Tate was mur- his his wife was murdered. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. But the thing is, you know, Day of the Dolphin isn't even Mike Nichols' worst movie, for you know, by far. Which is uh, which? What planet are you from? That's that's probably the worst. Um, <laughs> Heartburn's not a very good movie. Regar- actually, regarding I like I, I, I well, I, 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 I kind of like Heartburn. Probably. 
I mean, Hartford is... Hartford is... You go first. No, no, no. I mean, I, we, we can talk about all these movies when we get to, to the director for sure. I'm sure we'll have interesting things to say about Hartburn. I think it's I, it's definitely a, a flawed movie, but um, but I, I, w- I will go ahead and say I'm not going to talk about regarding Henry uh, later on because that movie <laughs> yeah. is maybe one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Yeah, well, I think, uh, like you said, we're going to have plenty to say, and, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot to discuss with the two films uh, we're covering, but it's, yeah, I think one thing I want to bring up later, because I I sort of changed my mind about the film that I want to talk about, uh, because I think he's really good at adapting theatrical productions, um, and that's something that I really like seeing, you know, a filmmaker accomplish where it's not, he manages to make a, you know, a stage play kind of cinematic and doing it very simply. Um, I remember seeing Angels in America and kind of being blown away by it, but I didn't have a chance to rewatch it. But there's something else later, tease, that I'll bring up that I just watched today that I'm really excited to talk about. Wolf was not a stage play, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if only. (laughs) Wasn't Teen Wolf a stage play first? Teen, Teen Wolf was a stage play. And, and, okay. Actually, actually, it's a very loose adaptation of A Doll's House. Yeah. Oh, really? Huh. Very loose. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, at any rate, uh, we <laughs> ought to get to our first major segment of the episode, What We Watched This Week. Traffic and weather coming right up, but now it's time to get lucky. <laughs> seen recently that uh, you want to bring up? Something new that's come out? Uh, well, there's de- the one movie that's, new, that's coming out that I definitely do want to bring up, as as one might want to do with a, a, a bad lunch, um, is this <laughs> is this the Salinger documentary? The, the... Oh, yeah, I've heard horrible things. Oh, it is the... No, I, 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 I preface this by saying that, you know, I'm not exactly, I'm not a guide-in-the-wall J.D. Salinger fan. I don't think Catcher in the Rye is this I, I don't think it, it, it's not a book that changed my life. I, I always thought Holden Caulfield was kind of a irritating little punk too, but this movie, this movie Salinger is so dreadful. It's almost exactly the type of documentary that, of Gary Salinger you'd expect from one of the co-writers of Armageddon and Alien vs. Predator, which, which it is, by the way. Um, basically, it's got like it's got like this huge it's got the, the huge basic problem, which is how do you make a documentary on someone who basically wrote one major novel, 
became uh, became a near total recluse. Never did interviews. Never appeared on TV. Um, there's like a few known photographs of him. So and that's it. So how so how do you make a movie about? This? How do you make a movie that goes on for two hours and twenty minutes on this person? Wow. What they do is wow. you know they they bring in a lot of talking heads. You know many of whom who have little to no connection with with Salinger. I mean I'm not quite sure what the what the bonding connection between J D. Salinger and say Martin Sheen was, but. You know, we'll leave that for, for future historians. Um, they rehash the same old stories. You know, Joyce Maynard talks about, like, the, you know, the comes out for a long time and talk about the, the poetry of, you know, banging when she was a wee lass. Um, they have, like, you know, they take, like, the same five or six photographs of him. They keep repeating them over and over and over. It, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like you're watching, like, a current affair or cops or something like that, and they got, like, reuse, like, the same little bit of footage over and over again to stretch things out. That's what this is. Um, they and uh, they I, at one point they take a new fo- a photo and they do like sort of like a, a step thing to make it look like like like, like a JPEG, uh, just whatever it is that you take a still photo and make it look like it's dancing around or something like that or moving around. They do that at one point. Um, they have dramatic recreations. They have several scenes where a guy supposedly playing Salinger is, st- is sitting uh, behind a typewriter, uh, sitting at a desk behind a typewriter on a stage, slowly ty- you know, typing away while sitting on the ground, st- surrounded by all the paper, is a small child who, dear God, I think is meant to represent his innocence or his, uh, you know, belief in a just world that, you know, was, was traumatized by war and being rich and snobby and all that. And then at the end of the movie, and, and, the, and the, the worst thing, the thing that annoyed me, annoys me most at all, they keep, you know, during all the commercials and all, they, they keep promising all the, you know, spectacular, you know, un- surprising unseen footage of J.D. Salinger and shocking revelations of, 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 of things that you've never heard of before. So you get to the movie and the, the, the total new stuff is uh, there's like uh, six seconds of him in World War II, like accepting some flowers from a German girl. Okay, they do that, repeat that like four or five times. And then at the very end of this two hour and 20 minute long movie, they they announce that there are these five new Salinger works that are going to be published, I guess, between 2015 and 2020. But the problem with that is that, you know, all that has already been, that was already announced like a month or so ago. So basically, the entire movie, do you remember the, the, the old Sun Classics movies of like the 70s? Or over here, uh, where yeah, I think yeah, so. Sun Classics was this like really sort of like you know cheap sleazy film distributor, and what they would do is they would make like these incredibly low budget cheesy documentaries about uh, easily exploitable subjects like do aliens live among us, or is there life after death, or who really killed Lincoln, or was Jesus real? And so they, and the, and the entire documentary would be like it would be consist of like you know very bad recreations or people you know learnedly stroking their beards in rooms while pontificating, and then they and, but they and they would always promise you sort of like you know grand revelations like you will you know you'll see Bigfoot but then you know they never actually get around to showing Bigfoot and all that, but they would have like these elaborate TV TV campaigns. This is before like TV was used as a major selling point for films. So and then they'd go into a, go into a town. They'd like you know four wall a couple of theaters, and everyone would be all everyone in town would be lured in the first couple of days of these elaborate you know ad campaigns promising these amazing things, and then they'd be you know everyone would be ripped off, 
And then they skied out a lot of town with all with all the money that they collected from those first couple of days before word got word gets out. Basically, what Salinger is is sort of like the literary equivalent of a Sun Classics documentary. So it's like you know the, the Salinger equivalent of In Search of Noah's Ark or Beyond and Back or that. It's a total rip up. It's really infuriating. I mean. Like you know, I'm I'm infuriated by it. I don't even like Salinger. I can't imagine someone who actually does admire you know the man and his work what they could possibly think of a movie like this. This is the kind of movie where if Salinger were alive today, if he saw it, he would get up, get dressed, you know, get go to town, get on get on get on TV on Entertainment Tonight, look straight in the camera, and go, listen, you assholes, and go from uh. there. It's awful. So I don't so think Mark like David Chapman would defend. <laughs> Even Mark David Chapman would, 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 would sit there and go, geez, really? You know, this, this, <laughs> is, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. You know, that, you know that, it can't be the worst thing that's ever happened to the name of J.D. Salinger. It's, uh, it, it basically sounds like television. Like it's, it's, just, it's just a television that somehow, it, because it's some kind of press, it's some kind of press push for the new works that are going to be released, I guess. Yeah, but, uh, but, that, that, just, but again, that that mention does, literally does not come till the last thirty seconds of this two-hour and twenty-minute-long movie. It's it's, just, well, yeah, it's it's more about drumming up his legacy or whatever. But it's the same sort of ideal behind it, right? Like just sort of to just get his name out there, and it in just sort of the cheapest, most in obvious the, way. way. Yeah, I mean, there's no insight there. You know, there, there, there's no insight as to why, you know, people think, why this book, you know, why Catcher in the Rye, you know, spoke to so many people and continues to speak to so many people. You know, you, you think you, you might have, like, some, you know, literary uh, scholar or something like that, you know, discussing that. Instead, you, you get a clip of John, uh, John Hughes that say, oh, yeah, the book changed his life. Oh, that's, yeah, I hate that. It's probably just a bunch of celebrity talking heads and, you know, yeah, and it, touching on the cliffs notes of... Salinger, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, there's not there's nothing in that movie. There's nothing in that thing. It's, it's like a really bad book report that someone like multimedia book report that someone slaps together like two days before, you know, the, the, the class because they they they've been blowing it off for like months and months and they just like whip together the most obvious stuff from Wikipedia and stuff they can pull up online and then slap it together and that's it. It's just rotten to the core. Oh, well, people are really interested. It's going to become a American Masters episode on PBS, so maybe that's where it's appropriately should be, I guess, you know. In terms of, like, cinematically, I'm assuming it doesn't do much with the documentary format, you know, not like something like The Imposter or... No, so no, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lazy and obvious ad. Eh. It's basically like miles and miles of stock... The stock you know, to, to, quote, quote, to quote from Mystery Science Theater, the stock footage actually becomes stock mileage, I believe it is the point. <laughs> Um, and the, well, then, like talking heads, that you know, uh, for many points, have nothing to do with him or anything like that. And then, you know, just like you know, like the same five or six photographs over and over and over again. I think uh, a better example of something like this is this documentary called um, Stone Reader. Oh from, yeah, that's a great. Movie. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's it, it's about a guy who tries to track down an author. Uh, I th I think the author himself wrote just one book, yeah. and you know the 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 subject of this documentary tries to sort of resuscitate the book and get it out and speak to the author and you know have him you know talk about his inspiration behind the story and everything. But it really does become sort of a interesting you know um, 
enlightened discussion about books and why you know one speaks subjectively to one person and or or another and i think that's that i remember being really moved by that movie because if you've ever fallen in love with a book and you know not necessarily it's not like a mainstream it's not a catcher in the rye or you know something like that it's just it becomes really like this sort of cool intimate experience with a story that not everybody gets to share and i remember thinking more people need to check that one out. It's called Stone yeah. Reader. No, no, it's I mean, really... Stone, Stone Reader, you watch that movie, and the minute that movie ends, you want to go out, you want to get your hands on that book immediately. Yeah. Whereas with yeah. Salinger, you want to go out, you want to get your copy of Catcher in the Rye and stick it in a blender. Well, I think this is a good transition over to the film that I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> something, I forgot to, something I forgot to mention on the top of the show is uh, I chose not to review this on... Um, Film Jive's What We Watch segment, uh, but I did get to have the pleasure of talking about Prince Avalanche on the Film Jive podcast, so go check that out if you're curious to hear a lengthy discussion on David Gordon Green's latest movie. Uh, but I wanted to save this one for uh, Director's Club because it's definitely one of the best films of the year, and it blew my mind uh, as I was watching it. It is called The Act of Killing. Um... Did you get a chance to see this, Patrick? I did not. Again, oh. hard for me to get out to the theaters when I am begging for ramen. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I know you were with me when we saw the uh, trailer for this. Oh and yeah. All the, all the press quotes it got. Um, you know, it's produced by Errol Morris and Werner Herzog, and it deserves all that praise and acclaim. Uh, the, the filmmaker interviews these Indonesian gangsters that were the uh, leaders of, a, of death squads responsible for killing thousands of suspected communists after the overthrow of the Indonesian government in 1965. And these gangsters were are actually now treated like celebrities or heroes in their homeland, and it's all due to this insane act of genocide that was perpetuated for years and years and uh, the filmmaker gives uh, the uh, gangsters an opportunity to reenact their crimes with and like these insane dramatizations are like bizarre and disturbing and sometimes really funny and I like some of the cultural differences because you don't understand why they find something funny uh, it, it just becomes this like absurd reenactment that y- you don't know how to take because s- some of the times you know it's you, you have to like watch them you know uh, have these mock decapitations and they're laughing and cheering about them as you know they're celebrating all the murder and mayhem they created back in the day and I I was speechless throughout this this film it was. You know, it, it sort of forces you to confront the true horrors uh, of war, and you know, specifically a, a war that not a lot of people know about. And you know, there's so much going on in this movie other than you know the story itself. It it, it kind of you know it, the way the the gangsters recreate their crimes. Often it's in the kind of the guise of their favorite Hollywood genre. You know, a gangster movie, a western, even a musical. So it, in this kind of surreal way, it does become about like how uh, media and cinema can be intermediary in sort of creating like 
you know, even these evil guys just having such an influence on them and how they, you know, sort of idolize, you know, movies like The Godfather or whatever, and then they sort of become that through their acts of crime. And then seeing them reenact it and sort of celebrating it, is, it's like disturbing on top of disturbing because what they did in and of itself is horrendous. And then to see them reenact it with glee is just, you know, it, it, it just such conflicting feelings. And then you really just, you're left feeling um, completely disturbed by knowing that all this took place. Um, but it's, there's some really insane, beautiful imagery that wouldn't be out of place in a Werner Herzog movie, like there's this kind of strange fish-like creature with these dancers coming out of it. Uh, there's just really interesting choices from the from this filmmaker to uh, tell the story, and uh, I don't know. I was kind of blown away by the act of killing. I ne- have not seen anything like it, but I don't even think I will ever sit through it again. It's really disturbing. <laughs> Uh, did you see this, Peter? I am mortified to admit that I have not gotten around to seeing it yet. I mean, I, yeah. I want, I, I really want to. I, I mean, all the stuff I've seen on it looks fascinating. All the stuff I've read about sounds incredibly interesting. Is I just literally have not, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm busy off going to see Riddick, so. <laughs> Well, so you, I'm, you need I'm, something light after this. Yeah, you know? I, I'm deeply mortified that I haven't seen it yet. So, but I, I really want to. I mean, it, and everyone I've talked, all, uh, you know, all my colleagues that I've talked to are just like, you know, just completely. And these are people like see like tons of movies. And I mean, they're all, you know, to a, to a one, they've all just been completely knocked out by this thing too. So, yeah, and like you know, like we were talking about, sort of uh, you know the way the imposter sort of played with the conventions of documentary filmmaking. This sort of does that in, you know, the way he's cutting back and forth between the reenactments and then um, the actual guys, you know, talking about what they did. And then, you know, there's some interesting, you know, uh, surprises towards the end involving remorse. And, you know, it it becomes really moving and surprising. I just, uh, it's unlike anything I've seen. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what this filmmaker does next, uh, because it's just one of the most original documentaries I've seen in a long time. So yeah, get on that, people. For I'm gonna sure. uh, my my mom's birthday is coming up, so I'll get her the Blu-ray. <laughs> you should do another commentary with her on that one. That would be a yeah. blast. No, it would be really fun. Um, she she <laughs> hates in, she hates Indonesians, so it'd be perfect. No, I'm joking. My mom is not a racist. <laughs> she doesn't like Indonesians. She's not a racist, <laughs> right? They're, I don't even consider them human, honestly. So that's, that doesn't count as racist. Uh, that's a horrible. No, I'm joking again. Um, yeah, I really would like to see that, and I'd really not like to see that. So uh, it sounds that's like one of those I have one of those things. I'm just gonna have to sort of buckle in and see. Um, now, now, everything you've said about the act of killing, it, it feels very much like what I expected um, sort of from the, that trailer, which does really, is really just a jaw-dropping trailer on its own. Um, yeah. Now, but I, wh- wh- what most surprised you about the act of killing? What most surprised you when you actually got to sit down and watch it uh, about that film? Um, well, I wasn't prepared for the way the reenactments were executed and like they're they're strange you don't understand logically why 
like they show earlier films from when the actual genocide took place and they actually, you know, showed them to children and there's like just horrible, violent, gory imagery that they said, you know, we show this to kids to sort of celebrate our cause and why we're going after communists. And that alone is enough to give you nightmares. Like just knowing that these guys set out to, you know, brainwash children essentially to thinking what they were doing was just. Uh, and then, you know, those, but the reenactments themselves are just so awful. They're not, they're not, you know, cinematically good. It's like watching Ed Wood doing these reenactments. You know, they're does that making it making it more disturbing? The sort of inept filmmaking. Yeah. I think it, it it does. It's it's weird because like at first because you're seeing like a you know a, a fat guy cross dressing and acting goofy. It's kind of funny in a absurd way, but then you realize what they've done and how terrifying and that is. So it's it's very difficult to watch. It's very confrontational in you know what has taken place in that country's history and everything. Um, and I, I think it's an important film to learn about. You know how these things take place and why these things take place and then what the actual um, people who cause this genocide, what they go through uh, mentally after something like this. Uh, so, I, yeah, I mean, the, but the biggest surprise is just learning about the reenactments and how they chose to present them both to children in the earlier days in the 60s and then now they're deciding to, you know... Uh, recreate them in these really strange ways. And like I said, in different genres, uh, they sort of, you know, uh, idolize, you know, 50s noir films or gangster movies, and they talk about them. They cite specific titles, and that sort of becomes even more scary to learn, like, oh, yeah, they love these movies, and, you know, maybe it influenced them. I mean, obviously, when the events took place in the 60s, there wasn't, you know, the, the kind of movies that we've seen now, but still, they... They sort of idolized, uh, you know, like Cagney or, you know, those kind of guys and thought, like, we want to be like them and choosing to approach, you know, their torture in that way and then seeing it recreated is, it's it's not an easy film to watch, but it's unprecedented. It's one of the best films of the year. Um, uh, I I mean, obviously, all word on that movie is that it's just utterly jaw-dropping and phenomenal, so... uh but uh, it's interesting to hear a little more about it. Yeah. Couldn't shake it, that's for sure. So prepare yourself. <laughs> it might haunt your dreams. Well, that's... Uh, Except for his mom. A while. Yeah. <laughs> Except for my mom. <laughs> she, too, will laugh at the decapitation. I'm stopping this. That's, that's <laughs> a dumb Did thing she- to... Did she laugh at the Friday 13th decapitations? She did. I think. Uh, <laughs> do you want to find out? Go back. I, I, I love that I, I worked so hard to promote uh, a weird bonus episode that I did, but I'm so happy about it. That, uh, Me too. If you still haven't heard it, go back, listen to the uh, Friday 13th commentary I recorded with my mother, who had never, who'd only seen two horror movies in her life and had not seen any horror movies since 1975. Uh, it was a real delight. And um, but uh, speaking of horror movies, um, uh, I've we've been away a while. I have a lot to choose from as far as what I can uh, talk about watching. A lot of it not so memorable. 
Um, I saw a film recently uh, called The Attack um, about uh, a uh, about a, uh, a Muslim doctor in uh, Israel who finds out his wife is a, a suicide bomber, and it's sort of a combination of uh, a story about his grief and him trying to put the pieces together as to why this person, who he would have never suspected to be part of such a thing, would do that. Um, in the end, it's I wasn't super thrilled with it. It's very slow-paced and uh, it's very sparse. Uh, it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's And if you don't know a lot about that sort of culture, it can be really eye-opening, but uh, it wasn't too great. Um, uh, what I would like to talk about, though, is I recently did a marathon where I watched every Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Uh, Sweet. Four, which yeah. I... Yeah, well, this is my, it's my absolute favorite horror film franchise, which, granted, it's setting a pretty low bar because there is no horror film franchise that's good from start to finish. Um, you, might have, you might have series that have, like, you know, like Evil Dead, that has a pretty high bar for quality. I'm not a huge fan of Army of Darkness, but that's miles better than the worst, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But there's only, like, three of them. Once once you have any horror franchise that has a, a substantial number, you're not they're not all the right. the, the the average uh, quality of any of any given film can be really bad. Um, but I decided to do this because it's one of my favorite things, and it just seemed like a, a crazy thing to do. And the number one thing I learned is that um, uh, movie marathons are fucking horrible. don't do that shit Uh, don't do that thing where you take a whole day off and you watch all the extended versions of Lord of the Rings what are you doing with your life it's a horrible thing to do to yourself it's (laughs) it's so oh man it starts off so pleasurable too with the with the Nightmare on Elm Street series because all the all the really good ones are front loaded Um, as someone who thinks New Nightmare is a not is actually a quite a bad film uh as interesting as it is, uh, once I sort of realized that uh, Dream Master was over and now there were no more really good Nightmare on Elm Street movies to look forward to, uh, became kind of my own my own personal nightmare. Uh, but, uh, okay, so a few things uh, I realized about the series that I never realized before. Um, number one, part four is way underrated. That's a really, really good movie. That's not. I agree. It's I, I. I. It's not as good as uh, the Rennie Harlan one, right? Yes, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Rennie Harlan, but that that movie's really great. They that movie is finally where the it, it's sort of this sweet spot where the franchise was big enough that they got like a they have a substantial budget, and so they're able to do all sorts of really crazy stuff um, mm-hmm. that. Like part three is my favorite movie, and I think it's one of my it's one of my favorite horror movies of the eighties. Uh, it's just it's everything I, lo- I love everything about it. I love how uh, all the characters are explored through their dreams. You know, as simple as the characters are drawn, I I just love that about that movie. But you can it's kind of rough around the edges uh, at points, and you it, it kind of feels a little small compared to what the series became. Uh, and so four, it really feels just like let loose. And it's really fun, and the characters are good, and I don't know, and the and the it's fucking gross as shit. The uh, the when the girl's arms snap off, and she has little roach legs under <laughs> under her arms, like that 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 part is super gross. There's there's a sweet scene in a movie theater, and there's the pizza souls, which I know Jim is a fan of. 
I am indeed. <laughs> I always bring that up whenever. Yeah, I love that. Um, um, and doesn't there like a looping? They have like a they go through like a loop over and over again at one point. Was that part four or part five? That's part. That's part four. That's right. That's oh, actually. Yeah. Um, I believe this was on the hot. I think buzz, it's actually part four through at least six. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The uh, well, on the, on, the, on the hot fuzz commentary, uh, Edgar Wright talked about once he was a projectionist and he got the reels mixed up on a screening of Nightmare on Elm Street Part Four and no one noticed. <laughs> that's how <laughs> that's how tight the storytelling is, but it's still really good and it's definitely one of the better ones. Um, part one is weird. Uh, I I think it's so familiar that. Uh, to me that I had forgotten that it's, it does really weird things that are never revisited, um, such as when, uh, like, sometimes dreaming is, it. sometimes the dreams are represented sort of like Inception, where there's it, they're just this world that are, is in the teenager's brain, and then sometimes dreaming acts as, like, astral projection, like where Nancy goes out to, like, goes out to see the kid in the prison cell get hung, like... Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. they mess around with the rules a lot. And when she's, like, astral projecting, she is half asleep, and her and Johnny Depp is able to talk to her and sort of, like, pop into her dream and out. There's a lot of weird rules that are never revisited, and the... Oh, and the ending is the weirdest fucking thing ever. I have no idea. I don't See, get, that's, that's I don't the part... That's the part... The, the, the very... The, the very the, well, are you talking about the ending or, like, the, the, the little tag at the end? The... The the the, the ending and the tag. Both it, are See, the, the, ta- the tag... That's what that's what ruins... The, it, it actually ruins the movie for me. Because, you know, in Tales, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's a, it's a pretty... You know, it's a pretty well-done movie. And then that, 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 that last little thing just completely just destroys it for me. So that's why I've never been able to quite embrace... You know the original Nightmare on Elm Street because I just hate that 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 little. It's it's you know it's like Back to the Future where you know like the last two minutes of that movie I just kill the whole thing for me. I uh, I, I I imagine it, it it must be hard for for horror filmmakers to resist that fucking Carrie tag because they're like hey it worked for Carrie it worked for Friday the Thirteenth but it does not work for Nightmare right well and, 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 but in Carrie like you know in Carrie and in all and to a degree in Friday the Thirteenth I mean. They sort of make logic. They they, they all, I, and, and using logical sense, you know, I'm I'm really stretching the the definition here. But it just it it. But even within like the bizarre logic of the Nightmare on Elm Street move uh, of Nightmare on Elm Street, that ending does not make any sense whatsoever. No, it doesn't. I didn't get it at all. I, I actually don't. I understand like she killed Freddy by you know saying you know I don't believe in you or you know. All that stuff. I just didn't understand the logic of how you know her mom died and then and, and became a know, weird skeleton back. that waved yeah. at her. <laughs> yeah, I remember okay, that. And then the the other thing I, I learned is that people who defend uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare are defending it purely on its ideas because and on the level of execution, that movie is horrible. Number one, it's like this is the real Freddy. He's he's the real demon behind the funny Freddy Krueger in the movies. But like the first thing you ever see Freddy Krueger do in the movie is tickle this guy's dick as he's driving down the road. Like <laughs> like her husband, the special effects artist, is like driving and he's sort of like falling asleep behind the wheel and like a little claw pops out of the seat and just tickles his dick. Like it's the like there's no like okay wh- like what's the core strength of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. It's the crazy imaginative dream sequences. Like, that's why everyone goes to see it. And there's none of them in New Nightmare. 
and new like new nightmare is so dull and it's so and it does and it's Wes Craven doing the uh thing M Night Shyamalan got railed on for in Lady in the Water where he casts himself as an artist and also the protector of the universe. Well, he's also playing himself too, so right, right. It's like yeah, it's, but in, but in that, but in that he's playing he's playing the creator of the you know the, a universe that he that you know he's created. I mean, whereas in in Lady in the Water, Knight is supposedly playing like the the, the savior of literally the savior of of us all. Um, I I know I actually uh, of them you know Night New Nightmare I is my favorite of them. Um, obviously, you know, I liked it a lot for the, for the ideas, as you said. I think it, you know, obviously he did sort of the same thing a couple years later with Scream, uh, you know, some yeah. of ideas. Although I, I think, I think that actually, although Scream is probably, as, as a horror movie, I would say Scream is probably better, but I, I think that, uh, New Nightmare is a more interesting film. Um, and the fact that you don't have these elaborate, you know, the, the, these jumbo-sized elaborate, uh, dream sequences, I think, you know, wor- works to its advantage because, first of all, that's, sort of the point that you know that the these movies become so that, that these movies become so ridiculous after what they've lost the ability to scare but it's not but he doesn't replace the elaborate dream sequences with anything that's scary or interesting like the like do we need to see it, fucking M- miko hughes be a creepy kid again like he's the most like it is so annoying like the creepy kid who does things for no reason except he's a creepy kid like it is it replaces the thing that makes Nightmare on Elm Street series interesting and it replaces it with the dumbest horror movie trope maybe my least favorite horror movie trope of all time which is creepy kid being creepy for no reason and his mom going why are you being creepy well because the screenwriter had no ideas that's why okay yeah, like I said, I, I just find it a lot more, and maybe it's the fact that I, I don't have not never particularly venerated the rest of the series. That may be why you know I find that one more interesting than the the, the other ones too. So it's cer- it's certainly much different from the other ones. I can I could understand that for sure. Yeah. Um, oh, also, also one more thing I realized is there's almost no redeeming qualities about Freddy versus Jason. Freddy versus Jason is like an ex- like Freddy versus Jason. If if you ever wanted uh, the perfect example of why like fanboys should never ever ever be listened to, it's because he, they clamored for years and years for Freddy versus Jason, and it's the dumbest fucking thing ever, and it's so useless. Well, yeah, but on the other hand, ex- you know exactly what you know what 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 brilliant dramatic possibilities could there have ever been in a Freddy versus Jason movie in the first place? I mean, well, that's my point. It shouldn't you know, exist. It's, it's, like it's, it's, it's a dumb. Yeah, no, it's a dumb movie. I mean, it, it's as dumb as possibly can be, but. As I, as I recall, and uh, granted, I don't think I've actually seen the damn thing since, you know, whenever it came out. You know, as, as dumb, useless slot goes, I mean, it, it's, it's got, it's got a few moments here and there. I mean, uh, Ronnie, Ronnie, you directed that one, right? As, as I recall. And, That's you know, there's, you know there's, there's some nifty, you know, some neat visual stuff here and there. I mean, is it, necessary? No. I mean, basically it's just sort of like the equivalent of like, you know, like uh, King Kong versus Godzilla or or what, one of those things. I mean, if you just take it just as like a, a big dumb goof and you you don't go into it expecting like the most terrifying movie ever, you know, it, it's got its moments. I mean, gr- I, I would not recommend, you know, go, I would not suggest you know, rushing out right now and seeing it now, but if you've never seen it before, and if you haven't seen it before, there's no reason you should ever, you know, waste two hours of your life watching it. But, you know, it's, 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 it's still amusing. Although, I have to admit, my favorite thing about that is, after going to the, after the screening of the movie, a fellow critic who's occasionally been on the adult side 
actually uh, afterwards was asking because he wasn't quite sure which one was Freddy and which one was Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, true story. Pretty good. Well, uh, I- I'm kind of glad that it's gone off more of, like, you know, yeah. Pinhead versus Pumpkinhead or well, something. Well, I think at one point well, they were talking about... As long as you stay off of YouTube. Well, at one point they were talking, as I vaguely recall, and I think this is, like, right after, because, like, like, you know, when the movie came out and it made, like, a you know like a huge you know amount of money its opening weekend, they kept talking about sequels and that immediately. And I think at one point they were talking about Freddy versus Jason versus Ash or something like that, as I... Gimli recall, which it would which, which pretty which that probably would have been disastrous. That was that, well, that was a, that was a, that was a, that was realized as a uh, comic book series. Uh-huh. But uh, I mean, I mean, I don't want to get into a huge debate about Freddy versus Jason, seeing as neither of us like you, seeing as you're not exactly yeah. a passionate defender of it. But yeah, I, I mean, will say a, that's a good goof. I, I, I think and that's the thing all about kaiju is. I think the thing about kaiju is if kaiju is you have a giant monster attacking buildings. If that's what you and it's just this is the sheer oh look it's the size and it's sort of the kitchen it's sort of the fun of seeing them destroy things and it's like well what would make this what 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 would realize the full potential of a kaiju movie well if there are two kaijus fighting each other and instead of and the human beings they're just caught in the middle and there's even more destruction and there's even more chaos whereas the 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 purpose of, the purpose of Freddy or Jason as forces as characters as anything is not really realized any more by having them fight each other, because it's not like watching them fight people is interesting. It's not like we like watching Friday the 13th. Yeah, they don't even fight each other for like so what, the last ten minutes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a really yeah. dumb fight. Yeah, so I, but um, so let's see, what was what else? I take it over Alien vs. Predator any day of the week. I haven't seen Alien vs. Predator, so I, I might be with you there if, if I ever do get around to seeing that. Yeah, I probably won't. Um, Patrick but, uh, was definitely right about New Nightmare. I think that on a, like a really early episode, I revisited New Nightmare myself, and uh, I was going to start a segment called "Patrick Was Right." Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, it happens uh, so rarely. I know. <laughs> but yeah, but, uh, I just I'm not a big fan of it now. I mean, when I first saw it, I thought it was kind of cool, and I liked the meta elements of it. But then Scream came along and did it much better. And so. uh, let's see. Um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 still super gross uh, and weird and not gross and weird because of the homosexual content but gross and yep. weird because <laughs> the movie makes no sense uh, and is just bizarre in its choices and the and the gore is actually really gross in it um, I, and uh, uh, what else is uh, I, I think that's about it oh uh, one other thing real quick um, on, on this tip of light dumb comedic horror movies uh, Leprechaun Three, surprisingly good. Leprechaun Three, check it out. It's really fun. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty it, random. It, it just it just makes up these rules about the Leprechaun universe, like just just ad hoc for no reason other than it's like, well, these are rules that we can build a screenplay around, and it actually sort of has a Nightmare on Elm Street part uh, kind of vibe to it in that um, all of these characters who you're introduced to that you know are just going to be fodder for, to be murdered by the leprechaun, you, they all have their wishes granted by the, by a coin that was stolen from his pot of gold. And it's, and it's all about their wishes sort of turning on them. And it's in the same, a lot of the same way that a lot of the dream sequences in Nightmare on Elm Street are. But it's, it's a, a pretty, pretty funny movie. And it's, and it's knowing, like, it's funny on purpose. It's not, uh, so bad. It's good. And, uh, I just also saw that right. I was looking through a list of movies I saw recently, and Leprechaun uh, Three was there too. So uh, go ahead and give that a chance. Don't watch any of the other ones, but no, I want to see Leprechaun in the Hood. Leprechaun, oh, man. 
Been wanting to see that forever. Just Google the Leprechaun in space. Yeah, yeah. Leprechaun in space is is the real jam. Uh, Makes Jason X uh, look like like, uh, Star Trek 2. I don't know. Uh, that really, metaphor, really, really quickly, did you uh, have you ever seen it? Because I haven't had four hours to spare, but because I too am interested in the Elm Street legacy, did you ever see the documentary Never Sleep Again? Outstanding documentary. That's cool. really, really yeah. good. It's the people on there are very frank and candid um, in a way that I've seen similar documentaries on on Friday the Thirteenth. Apparently, the people who did that are doing a, like a four-hour documentary about the Friday the 13th series, which I will be interested in seeing, but there's like another one on Friday the 13th called His Name Was Jason, and that mostly just feels like a puff piece about the series, like about yeah. how cool it is and everything. Whereas Nightmare on Elm Street, they really, they go into depth about like aborted sequels, like Peter Jackson had a sequel where uh, where like people are kept in a perpetual sleep as part of prison, and it's like this weird sci-fi thing, <laughs> and like... So it ends up being this just ongoing universe, and it it's almost like it's almost like a matrixy version of Nightmare on Elm Street. Gee, Peter Jackson uh, putting uh, people asleep, what a shock! Yeah, well, that, yeah, that was before he mastered it with Lovely Bones. Um, but but there's a but there's a uh, but there's yes, and there's a lot of frankness about like part two, and everyone sort of being like, yeah, we don't know what the fuck was happening with part two. Um, and the lead actor was actually out at that point, I think. Yeah, well, that's interesting. This is good for him, but um, uh, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the lead actor did not write or edit that movie. The things that go on in that movie have less to do with about him than they do about whatever prompted the him to them to set it set put the coach in a gay S and M club and then have him spanked to death. Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. No, the the documentary is really really interesting. Frankly, I would take it over any of the actual movies itself, I, my personally. I mean, even if you don't like them, if you're not a fan like me, it's still a really fascinating documentary. I would, Part I would, 3 I would is really say, great. Uh, it, and it feels like a marathon, because you get to go through all the movies in the history, but you don't have to end up watching Part 5, which is a snooze. Uh, but, so, uh, yeah, I would recommend, uh, instead of doing what I did, uh, just watch Never Never Sleep Again, the that four hour documentary that was really good, and then uh, watch part four, and then realize that eh, that's actually a pretty good movie. Yeah, and watch part three too because it's great. Well, yeah. I love it. You, you should you know, Frank, Frank Darabont co-wrote it, which was interesting to learn recently too. Frank Darabont. You know I mean? Frank Darabont '80s horror is is always worth seeing. I mean, The Blob. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's right, and Chuck Russell also directed that one too. Which That's is really right. Good. They just they, he just write he just writes really good characters, um, which is which is something that a lot of '80s horror forgot about because they were just like, nah, people just want more assholes to get killed, and no, we don't want to hate our lives while we're watching the parts where no one's getting killed. We want people we care about. We will don't worry, we will still be enjoy the parts where people are getting killed. Um, right. And I think I think that's one of Frank Darabont's strengths in those movies is that he doesn't just let it be cheap schlock. He lets them. Like as thinly sketched again as those characters are, he lets them uh, like have be interesting and well written. Well, that yeah, that was must have been really fun to sit down and watch all those yeah. movies in I, a row. I, I, and, I, and exhausting. I, oh yeah, I mean I passed out um, uh, <laughs> in the middle of uh, New Nightmare, so then uh, the next morning I had to pick it up 
and uh, and and watch New Nightmare and Freddy vs. Jason. We do not watch the uh, remake. By the way, I did this. I did this all with with a with another lady friend. So all of my awesome slash horrible movie making decisions <laughs> are spurned on are spurned on uh, by the opposite sex. It would turn out. I remember I saw Freddy's Dead in 3D at the drive-in with Silence of the Lambs. And, oh, man, uh, was that Silence was... of the Lambs in 3D? No. <laughs> but um, I, I, I remember how horrible it was back then. <laughs> oh, man, 3D Migs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, yeah, that was a good time. Yeah. You do, you do not do not do not play the uh, uh, Lions of the Lambs uh, version. Do not go see the screening with the scratch and sniff that they set up. That is not worth it. Um, Just put the lotion in the basket already. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> okay. <laughs> well, let's try a, a very smooth transition now <laughs> into our director of the episode, which is Mike Nichols. Hello, podcast, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again about an artist who makes movies, countercultural and way groovy, and his career might have its ups and downs. Still hear some sounds of praise. Oh, Mike Nichols. Spice Pickles? No, it's Mike Nichols. Did you know that Mike Nichols is a third cousin twice removed of scientist Albert Einstein? Well, you do now. While attending the University of Chicago in the 1950s, Nichols began skipping class to attend theatrical activities. Nichols first met Elaine May at the Brown this time and he made his theatrical debut as a director with a performance of William Butler Yeats' Purgatory. In 1954, Nichols dropped out of the University of Chicago and moved back to New York City, where he was accepted into the actor studio and studied under Lee Strasberg. Nichols and May became well-known for their improvisational sketch comedy soon enough, and then by 1966, Nichols was a star director, and Time Magazine called him a superstar, and quote, the most in-demand director in the American theater, end quote. Though he had no experience in filmmaking, Warner Brothers invited Nichols to direct a screen adaptation of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Critics began calling Nichols the new Orson Welles, and soon thereafter he directed another smash hit called The Graduate, which spoke to a generation. But then, Nichols took a big risk by making an anti-war film called Catch-22, which you're going to hear discussed at length right about now. So, um, Mike Nichols took it upon himself to do this kind of lofty adaptation of uh, Joseph Heller's classic anti-war novel. And it came out just uh, after, I believe, Robert Altman's MASH. And it sort of stunned critics and audiences because it was very irreverent and, you know, it had some, you know, shocking moments and some slapstick and it was kind of tonally all over the place. But, um, you know, he he chose to take a big risk after the success uh, with The Graduate. Um, And, you know, some people thought it was a little, you know, kind of either too calculated or too... um, 
out of sync with itself, but I think that's actually very appropriate since that's what the lead character is going through. He's feeling really out of sync with reality at times. Um, and Nichols sort of captures this sort of hyper kind of like naturalism, but yet yeah, it feels like a fever dream. And the way he plays with narrative, it sort of reminded me of Slaughterhouse-Five. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it strives for that like dark comic tone of something like Dr. Strangelove. And I I like the delirious nature that we're kind of thrown into. And these very interesting vignettes with character actors that we all know um, are often very funny, and there's some very moving um, segments towards the end of the film and the latter half. Uh, This is actually the first time I've ever seen it. Um, And I'm really glad I did, because I thought it was unexpectedly interesting in how Mike Nichols chose to adapt this particular novel, which I have not read, but from what I hear, there was, uh, you know, a lot of people saying it wasn't, you know, it didn't capture the tone of the novel. Right, which is but, completely incorrect. Hmm. See, the, pro- the thing was that, you know, when, when that movie came out, it was a little bit like what with, with, with Ishtar, because at that time, you know, the idea, because people have been, you know, thinking about making, because by that time, uh, when it came out in 1970, Catch-22 had already been enshrined as, like, you know, one of the great American novels. And for years, people said, oh, there's no way that you could possibly film this thing. So then, you know, Mike Nichols comes along. He's already had, you know, he's had, like, this ma- massive success on stage. His first two films have, you know, both won, you know, awards all over the place. He's just won the Best Director Award. He can, he's at, the, he's at that point where, like, literally as a filmmaker, he can do whatever he, you know, he can do whatever he wants. So he decides to go out and he makes like, which was at that time one of the most expensive movies ever made, on yeah. a, based on a book that no one felt could ever be properly tra- turned into a film, and then it came out and part of and it basically it, it was a huge flop at the box office and it was a huge flop with critics and audiences partly because uh I, I, I partly part of it was because it came out right after Mash had come out as you said. And the thing was that basically, I think the movie that everyone thought that Catch-22 should be is what MASH was. Mm. Whereas, uh, you know, it's sort of like, you know, like, politely, and I mean, I love MASH, okay, but like, you know, like, this, this, this brash, irreverent thing, whereas um, Catch-22 is, you know, very funny, but I mean, it's more contemplative as well. It's more, uh, I don't want to say arty, because that, that, that sounds weird, but it's, 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 you know, it's a beautiful looking film. Yeah. Um, but I, but I just but it just it, it but it just seemed like you know whatever anyone might have thought that Catch Twenty Two should be as a film, that movie just for some reason did not catch you know did not strike them as being what they thought Catch Twenty Two should be. But the the irony, of course, being is that that is probably the closest that you could ever get to doing a proper film of Catch Twenty Two because the the you know the book basically you know the 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 book doesn't really have a story that you can like. You know that you can really follow from point A to point B to point C. But the great thing about the film that Mike Nichols and Buck Henry, who did the screenplay, did is that they capture the mood of Heller's writing and like this hallucinatory uh, war thing, where, you know, war thing where you, where like you know reality and insanity are just they completely blended together into this sure. like this bizarre hallucinatory fever dream. And I don't think, and, and I don't think people quite got that at the time. If that's what my, that Nichols and, and Buck Henry were going for. So then when it came out, it's, but, you know, right after this, that, you know, this, this other sort of like, you know, low budget thing came in and stole all, all of its thunder. Um, I think that, you know, that just basically killed Catch 22. But now, when you watch it now, you know, what, you know, now, now that, you know, a couple of decades have passed and all that and, 
uh, you, you just watch it on your own terms. You watch it, you go, "Oh my God, this is this is fantastic!" I think it's Mike. I think it's Mike Nichols' best movie by far. Oh, wow. everything he's yeah. And I and I also think, the, but the, the only problem though is that for me at least is that um, I think I also think it's the most purely cinematic film too. Because, but the problem is that you know since it did flop so hard, I think that you know from then on he's he has been a little. I don't want to say conservative in in like the the projects that he chooses, but he 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 you know, most of the things he does, especially the success, success, more successful ones, tend to be you know very you know you know you know very literate, very but you know you know very literate, very smart. But from a cine- cinematic standpoint, they're not really he's not really being hugely ambitious with most of his films and all that. Whereas I think with Catch Twenty Two, I mean, there's some of those stunning things I've ever seen, like that you know the the whole opening. Uh, where you see like all the planes taking off. I mean, just visually, it's, it's an astonishing film. And I think that by the, the with the failure of that, I think that just kind of like you know caused him to sort of get a little more conservative in uh, his choice of projects, his choice of approaching pro- his project. This is not to say that the, you know that his, he hasn't made good films since. It's just that I just don't think that he's quite taken the chances that he did with that film. And I think they paid off in that one, although critically and financially they didn't um i think the only thing that he's really done since that's actually been at quite as ambitious is uh as you meant uh, the one you're talking about before angels of america uh mm-hmm. where, where that where that's another one where where i think a lot of people kind of, you know you you saw saw that on stage and you're trying to think how could that be done as a film and he managed to again capture you know exit you know the, the the tone of it more than anything else and that's why that one works too so yeah, Catch Twenty Two, I think, is a brilliant film on every level. I mean, all the performances. I mean, it's got like one of the most incredible casts. I mean, like Alan Arkin as Usarian. You've got uh, Bob Newhart, Martin Balsam, Orson Welles is in it for God's sakes. Uh, Anthony Perkins, John Voight, uh, Richard Benjamin, and they're all and, and they're all just you know, they're they're all hilarious. I, and you would think that you like all these like sort of like you know and they all have, they all have like different different performing styles and you would think that you know it would just be like this big mess but they all just like come together beautifully. Yeah, I think the special effects are really interesting too. I mean, like the 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 aerial footage with the rear projection is really well done throughout. Like, I mean, you really feel like you're in the cockpit with those guys. Actually, a guy died do you know doing some of the the the, the filming of that. Hmm. Uh, because when the uh, second unit. Or yeah. assistant director. Second oh, wow. So, Patrick, what was your take? Um, well, I was really baffled by Catch-22 at the beginning. It was really, mm-hmm. really... As someone who... I'd never read the book. I I understood the vague premise uh, I uh, of... Obviously, I'd heard the term Catch-22 and understood the vague premise of... Uh, uh, oh, if you or if you don't want to fly in combat, then that means you're not crazy. And if you do, and if you are crazy, then you're not going to ask if you're going to fly. Like I understood that basic sort of famous uh, sort of paradox that um, sort of sets up the film that it, a film that or and or a story because the book it's in the book as well that is full of paradoxes like that. Um, but it was hard for me to get handled the movie first because it, it a lot of it it feels more in tune with Mike Nichols' uh, Second City sort of history than anything. It feels like a sketch yeah. comedy movie. It feels like... Yeah, the but, but to a degree, that's kind of like, like what the experience of the book is, too. Hmm. So, but, uh, ton- but tonally, uh, it, it was really disorienting. Um, and 
I understand why choices were made such as that because that's the movie is about. I mean, it's from. I mean, it's it's from largely, uh, you know, Alan Arkin's perspective, and it's largely from the perspective of someone who has just been so shaken by war that he's he's going in and out of memories, and he's you know, and it's a stream of consciousness, and it's very disorienting. So uh, I understand why the choice is made. Uh, the it doesn't always pay off. In my eyes, I think there's a lot of stuff in it that is not very funny and also not very moving. I think there's a lot of stuff in it that is very funny and very moving. I wouldn't say this is my favorite uh, Mike Nichols movie. It will. It definitely has my favorite moment in any Mike Nichols movie, which is uh, the the moment um, in which uh, I'm sorry, what's his name? Um, John Voight's character Milo. Uh, Milo is suddenly storming the streets of of Italy. Uh, you know, hiling Hitler, and they all have M and M armbands. Um, <laughs> I think to me, the, the 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 sort of the backbone of the movie, that story of of the weird black market scheme that uh, <laughs> that uh, First Lieutenant Milo Mindbinder has, um, that slowly just grows and grows until he becomes this insane, you know, fascist force. Uh, that takes over the whole army. I think that is one of the strongest pieces of satire of satire about war I've ever seen in any movie. Uh, I think, and not just satire of war. That's a you know that's that is it's a portrayal of capitalism as fascism, and it's and yeah. the, the, and the whole movie. The paradoxes are why are I mean the, the the central question about war is why are what drives men to kill each other? Why on such a large scale? What is this and it's all and all the paradoxes only serve to justify themselves and it's and i mean that is what capitalism is capitalism is well why do we have all of these uh you know why do we have all of these homeless people and all of these empty houses that were built during the housing bubble why do we have all of this why are we paying farmers to you know destroy food and also all these hungry people it's like well it's just that's sort of what the market demands at a given point and it's sort of just this weird self justification justifying loop um, and that, and that, and the movie's slow slide from this kind of, uh, at times quite broad sketch comedy. I'd say my one of my least favorite moments. Not that it isn't funny, but it, it just kind of cheapens the movie a little bit for me. Is when uh, Orson Welles is who plays the uh, the general when his uh, girlfriend shows up and she has that crazy uniform that just like has a pocket for each of her breasts to make them even more prominent and everyone is just going nuts. It's like a Benny, it's like a sketch out of Benny Hill. And I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say I didn't find it funny, but it definitely, it didn't have the biting satire of the best stuff. It didn't have the thematic relevance. You could say, well, it's just another part of war in that, you know, men are just driven by insane lust or whatever, but it didn't feel, I don't know. I didn't feel as justified to me, but, um, more importantly, the, the slide from the movie being that kind of at times extremely broad comic uh, sparse to really a fucking Fellini-esque nightmare towards the end um, when he's wandering the streets of Italy was such a powerful, powerful feeling. And it's as, as, and as totally inconsistent and as much as that uh, this film can be, and as much as that can bother me, like that is such an amazing feeling. And that is such an amazing thing. This movie pulls off. Um, to that, it's it's really kind of jaw dropping, and it, it's but it's playful too. It's 
it had there in the scene where Bob Newhart is going on in it, and again, this feels like most. Uh, if you if you've ever listened to early Second City sketch comedy or any like early sketch comedy from the '60s, it was very language driven. Mm-hmm. It was very you know pre pre Saturday Night Live pre Monty Python is is very language driven. It's very driven on wordplay and just setting up long strange scenarios. And like that Bob Newhart thing where it's like if I am in, then I'm not in, and they can't see me, but they can see me if I'm not here. Uh, like, and he's wandering around, but even, uh, even that thing that's mostly verbal in the background, the, the, the portrait of, uh, Winston Churchill turns into, I think most Mussolini, <laughs> like, like, that, that's a really interesting choice. That's a, that's, it's, it's about how bureaucracy and, and about how self-justifying language and, you know, the failure of language can lead to these horrific acts um, uh, when people stop treating each other like human beings, uh, and so to me, a lot of that's really powerful. And then a lot of the stuff where he's just sort of talking to that Italian woman, or like falling in love with her, or a lot of the stuff with Art Garfunkel's character and the the horror he falls in love with. Like a lot of that, I wish I. So this is a for I I feel like this is a two hour movie, and if there could have been like fifteen minutes cut, then it would have been. Uh, like a, a, a movie that I would have really loved even more, but it's still a it's still a fascinating and really interesting movie. And the fact that it was, I mean, I I would say I would probably say I like Mash more than this, but that's just because I'm a, I really really love Robert Altman and the style of as beautiful and as this movie is and as interesting as the edit, editing is, the style of Robert Altman's filmmaking just more clicks into my sensibilities and his comic sense and his sense of humor and everything just clicks and more clicks into my sensibilities than Mike Nichols, but uh, it's really a shame that this movie was overshadowed uh, by MASH and that, uh, and that uh, critics and audiences alike had to, had to determine that one, that, it had, that they had to choose when they had two of the greatest war satires ever to come out on film come out in the same year that they had to choose to bash one. Yeah. Um, what it was kind of like was uh, when uh, you know when everyone had been talking about you know when Apocalypse Now was being made and it took years and years and years for that movie to to get done and then you know like you know like uh, half a year before then Deer Hunter comes out and and it, and I mean great yes Apocalypse Now is now venerated as one of the greatest movies of all time but back then it was you know it was seen by a lot of people as sort of like it, at first it's sort of like you know like this this afterthought where you know it was like this big huge bloated thing whereas you know the Deer Hunter came in you know, beforehand, and no one had heard about it, and it wasn't, it was like this this thing out of nowhere uh, that, to them, you know, somehow captured the, the the whole Vietnam gestalt better than than Apocalypse Now did. Now, I mean, granted, everyone, you know, finally woke up and go, wait, wait, that was totally wrong, but, you know, it took a little while for that. Now, it's kind of like what would happen with, 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 with MASH and, and Catch-22, and this is not, I, and I don't want to suggest that I don't like MASH at all. I mean, I love MASH, I love Robert Altman, and as a filmmaker, I would take Robert Altman over Mike Nichols in almost any single case, except, the, you know, the, the, this one being that I prefer Catch-22 to MASH. But, I mean, they're both, you know, they're both brilliant, brilliant movies, don't get me wrong. I just like the, you know, the... the, the, the and I, what, you, what you call tonal inconsistency, I think, you know, is that I, I find, you know, actually perfectly capturing the tone of the book. Because the book, too, is all over the place and going from, like, you know, to like, you know very broad... You know, um, you know, broad sort of like you know wordplay, almost like ske- almost sketch comedy kind of thing, to like you know the, 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 these powerful dramatic moments. So you know, it's not as much inconsistency as actually being you know play, being very very close to the book, 
Um, it's just that, you know, like when it came out, I think everyone was expecting something, you know, funny, you know, something funnier and more straightforward than what they got, which seems like a kind They weren't, they weren't expecting. They Catch-22. They, they, they were expecting, you know, like the version of Catch-22 that they'd sort of like, you know, had in their mind as opposed to the Catch-22 that was actually, you know, in the pages of the book. So are you saying that you think in the future people are going to look back at 2013 and they're going to realize that both Olympus Has Fallen and White House Down are masterpieces and that we were actually living in an action movie renaissance? <laughs> actually, White House Down, I, 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 White House Down, oh, they're, they're, well, they're both the stupidest movie ever made, which is, <laughs> which sounds like a conversation in terms of that two movies can be the stupidest movie ever made, but in this case it happens, but the only thing, the, but the difference is that you know, White House Down, I at least think it acknowledges and realizes the fact that it's the stupidest movie ever made. Whereas Olympus has fallen, uh, okay, Olympus has fallen. That's the one with 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 uh, Gerard Butler, right? I, I'm not mixing right. you. Okay, that one tries to, I think, tries to think it think it's being like this this serious, dramatic, powerful, you know, action patriotic thriller, and that's why I hate it so much. Whereas White House Down, I think, it just realizes that it's it's it, it's dumb, right? You know, it's the dumbest thing ever, right from the outset. So that's why I, you know, no, again, not a great movie, but that's why I have a little sort of affection, but. Not quite. I, I yeah, yeah. I, I I do want to say I don't. It isn't that the movie has both nightmare, you know, dr- powerful dramatic moments and uh, and you know comic moments. It's more specifically that uh, the the effectiveness I find of the comic moments varies so much. I mean, like, like I said, like my one of my favorite things about this movie is that it slides into a fucking nightmare. Like the the realization yeah. that they that. The Germans that they're in order to get the cotton off their hands, they let the German they're they're bombing their own base for the Germans. Like like yeah. that is such a brilliant moment. And like the this the the sequence which does play like a sketch, but it's so much darker in tone than a lot of other sketches in the film. Like where uh, where Alan Arkin stands in for the body of the other soldier, and it's just just all about how dehumanizing mm-hmm. <laughs> the the act of war. Like that is brilliant, but. There's just a lot in this movie. I mean, it's a it's a it's a long movie, especially for a, a comedy. Um, obviously, it's not a, a straight comedy all the way, but and there's just there's a lot in it, and there's just some other moments uh, that I don't find uh, nearly as captivating. I don't I don't disagree with the, the approach. Uh, just maybe uh, just maybe I uh, edited down a little. But again, I I find uh, I have found over the year or over the years of doing this podcast that. Uh, I tend to be more of a stickler for tonal inconsistencies than the average person. I don't mm-hmm. know why that bothers me more than most people. So it's still an amazing movie and wrongly overlooked, I will say, uh, um, for sure. Yeah, I think the tonal inconsistencies are appropriate for the, you know what he's going through. It's, it's almost like... Uh, it's like this perpetual state of panic. It's kind of like, you know... Not necessarily romanticized, but it's it becomes like you know an accepted state of mind in that environment, and like you sort of go with that throughout. And I think you know going from the uh, dramatic moments to the you know the uh, comedic moments are a little jarring, but uh, you know given what you know he's going through and the fact that like all these different characters he's coming across, I think it, I think it sort of adds just to the overall uh, feel and mood of what it must be like to be in that state of mind. And, 
you know, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily like succumb to the sort of post traumatic stress syndrome in you know in ways that other war films might have, and I kind of appreciated that. Like it had a lot of levity, and you know, in that kind of situation, you do have to laugh at the tragedy at times. You know, I mean, you, otherwise you just kind of go mad. Uh, but I also found it really interesting just the uh, you know the language of the of a lot of the dialogue. There's a lot of repetition. The, and it's like very manic repetition of words and phrases throughout, and you know the uh, just the sort of uh, com- miscommunication aspect, and like the, uh, the the refrain that keeps popping up about him being the bombardier and he needs help, mm-hmm. and like I think that's really, I mean obviously that probably comes from the book, but it just it it just sort of fits in this like sort of in man- like uh, manic intensity going on and. Uh, you know, it, it helps that, like, I found most of it pretty funny, um, and, you know, makes me want to rewatch some old Bob Newhart shows, too, because uh, that guy is kind of a genius, too. Oh, uh, when he puts that mustache on, such a great yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I'm really I'm really glad that I finally caught up with this. It's, it's for some reason, I don't know why. It, I, I mean, my dad was such a huge fan of war movies, and he was in the Navy, and he... Uh, this is something that uh, never really came up, but uh, I'm glad now. I mean, especially like in realizing more and more and more about Alan Arkin's career before, like I saw Glenn Gary Glenn Ross for the first time or whatever. Learning about you know him as an actor and seeing his progression is also really great because I think he's just he's kind of a you know he he he, he approaches things very subtly, but in in this movie it's great to see him let loose and I I think. Uh, He's kind of uh, not necessarily underrated, but I, I, I prefer a performance, a very nuanced performance like this than something like Little Miss Sunshine, wow. where he sort of becomes a caricature. But, you know, he's great in this, and as is pretty much everybody. Yeah! So what do you guys think of that ending? Do you think that's... I, I, I almost kind of wish it ended. Uh, I, you know, I, I, you always want a movie to end at its strongest point. But what do you think of what of that ending? That giant, you know, sort of pullback to, you know, where he he just sort of drags a raft into the. I, I it, I'm not a. I wasn't a big fan of it. Like, what do you guys think? Basically, he's dead. He's dying. He's dying. You know, he. he you know, we're, I, we're supposed to like we're supposed to think that like you know by him dragging the raft out in the ocean, he's somehow escaping the madness and everything like that. But if you think about it for more than ten seconds, he's going out on a raft with nothing, you know, no provisions or anything into the ocean. He's going to die in about a couple of days. So you know, it, it seems again, it's another paradox where it seems like freedom, but really he's signing his own death warrant. The only difference is you know he's doing it by his own volition as opposed to you know being sent up in another bombing, you know, setting up on another plane mission where you can get shot at. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like, I, I read about how Nichols really embraced, uh, you know, water imagery and pools and things like that in The Graduate because he felt it was a story of, you know, people drowning and, you know, slowly, you know, dying in a way, like, especially on the inside. But here it's, it, it kind of has a, you know... Again, he's sort of. I guess he's bracing ambiguity again in a really interesting way, and having that uh, raft out there, you know, and the way the camera pulls back, and he becomes really small. 
I, I, I thought it was cool. I mean, I don't know if I got emotionally what you're supposed to be feeling at that moment, but I, I thought it was an interesting note to end on, at least. I, th- I just feel like the point that he's going to die, like, that was the point that was already established, like, an hour earlier when Martin Sheen, like, <laughs> when, you know, when, when Martin Sheen was getting ready to kill mm-hmm. the first lieutenant or uh, whoever on the base, like, that was already, like, that, I don't know. I mean, I'm, at this point, I'm nitpicking because there's so much about this that, that this movie does well that I'm, that, uh, you know, uh, that I struggle to think of really good things to say about it. But it's just, it was it was a little confusing to me uh, as far as why uh, a movie with so many potential endings, you know, the movie, it has so many different layers that it, it chose to do that uh, sort of weird <laughs> thing. Eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're ready to move on. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, Patrick. Uh, Working girl. <laughs> which I kind of like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not bad. Harrison Ford's pretty good in it. It's, it's okay. I, I, it's, it's okay. It, it's 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 it's, it's kind of dated now, but. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The hairstyles alone are pretty dated. And 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 and, and it's kind of weird that you know that with, with Mike Nichols, you always think of as being sort of like this. This, this counterculture person, yet you know, with Working Girl, he's basically like you know, embracing you know, like the, the the whole Reagan era gestalt, you know, to to a T. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it, it you know, but as as a, as a a sort of like you know, glib, you know, silly romantic comedy, you know, it, it does the job, and Melanie Griffith is great in it. I mean, she's really good in it. And, so yeah, it's cute. I mean, it, but 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 again, that's that's what I'm saying about Mike Nichols making movies that are like you know, like he'll he'll make like a movie that's like you know, good but sometimes inconsequential. That's basically Working Girl is good but inconsequential. I feel like maybe uh, people in my life get mistaken thing we're actually going to talk about Working Girl. We're actually talking about <laughs> carnal okay. knowledge. Uh, Something completely out- different. Now it's now uh, now Peter, you said something interesting that I hadn't considered, and actually makes Mike Nichols' career a lot of sense as far as um, him sort of retreating uh, after uh, Catch Twenty Two. I mean, both Catch Twenty Two and The Graduate. Um, I mean, as, as as mixed as we are on The Graduate, uh, it, both the both those films do uh, try to sort of break ground with their cinematic language and their editing style yeah. um, mm-hmm. and and their filmmaking. And he did sort of uh, retreat from that into sort of a safer space, though before he sort of... Uh, though I, I will say that his first retreat uh, was actually sort of an interesting one because he, what he did was he retreated to his sort of, uh, sort of a lot of the tone and themes of his first ever film, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, um, with carnal knowledge, in that it's it's a it's a film with a very small cast, and it's a film about the way people talk to each other, uh, and it's a film about how people's self-loathing sort of comes out uh, in their relations to other people, um, yeah. and sort of how people try to use each other to get over themselves, and uh, how they never quite come together or never and never quite fall apart all the way. Um, now, uh, carnal knowledge is an interesting movie because it follows uh, two friends played by uh, Jack Nicholson. And this is honestly, it's more a film about if you want to, if we if we did an actors club podcast, this we would also talk about Colonel knowledge because this is Jack Nicholson. They right after his first sort of huge 
uh, I mean, he, he first got attention with his you know supporting role in Easy Rider, but it was his, his performance in Five Easy Pieces uh, mm-hmm. in 1970 that, that, that sort of made him uh, a, a huge name. And this is his follow-up to that. And again, it, his performance is just uh, a jaw-dropping uh, act of, uh, of energy and rage and sexuality and all of the things that would make, you know, that would sort of, make uh, Jack Nicholson such an icon, uh, especially in his early work. Um, so it's about two friends uh, played by Jack Nicholson and uh, Art Garfunkel, uh, or Arthur Garfunkel, as he's credited in both this and Catch-22, uh, sort of a precursor to Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or, uh, <laughs> or, uh, or uh, you know, any number of, of rappers who use, or wrestlers who use their real names in movies. Uh uh, and it's about these two friends who go through the 50s, uh, you know, uh, to the 60s, to the 70s, um, and, they, and the sort of relationships they have with women at that time and the sort of, uh, you know, and sort of how sex kind of rules their life at, at any given point um, in wildly different ways. Uh, you know, you have, the, you have the sort of just, uh, fat, you know, you have, you're sort of the naive horniness of of a teenager who you know is just starting college, and you have the sort of uh, possessive, um, sort of all uh, sort of consuming nature of just wanting to conquer people, you know, in your uh, you know mid to late twenties, and then sort of the uh, sort of the what you're when you're seeking out more emotional stability in the in your thirties and stuff, and it's. And 40s, and it's and it's really interesting uh, way to structure a movie. It's again, it's the movie itself. Most of the scenes take place in in a limited number of of sets. That uh, there's you know, and it's a three act structure, uh, very rigid. Uh, and um, yeah, it's really insightful. It's just uh, it's uh, every all the way that Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel interact with each other. Art. Arthur Garfunkel is not the world's greatest actor, but he he does all right playing a quiet nebbish, as, as most mm-hmm. people who aren't good at acting do. As long like as long as you just cast him in a role where they they don't have to say very much and just sort of look concerned that they're all right, uh, and obviously he doesn't have to try to match Jack Nicholson's ferocious energy. But seeing Jack Nicholson work is a is a marvel. Seeing uh, Candace Bergman in an early role. She's really, really does a has sort of a fascinating uh, character. If, if I had to pick one complaint about Colonel Knowledge, it would be that the most interesting character of the movie is sort of Candace Bergman, and um, just because it, the movie isn't about her character, we don't get to end up seeing where this sort of woman, this sort of character you, you don't see often, is a very self-assured, very uh, confident woman who. You know, confident in her life and sexuality, and sort of, she's torn between what she even wants in that. And I'd love, I'd love an alternate version of this movie where you see what she was like uh, later on in the '60s, and then again later on in the '70s, um, because I feel like she's a really interesting character. But uh, regardless, uh, then you wouldn't get to see Anne Margaret um, uh, in the second act with uh, Jack Nicholson, which is just. Uh, jaw like just draw dropping the again the, the fights they have are, are like virginia wolf it's it, it's just it's just it's just really really scary and exciting 
and frightening and um and raw and so i i really like carnal knowledge a lot it's a, like you know like 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 peter kind of pointed out post catch 20 like a lot of uh magnetos post catch 22 work it's it's really a lot of no thrills no frills there's not a lot of clever you know editing there's not a lot of clever uh camera work it's you know handsomely shot but it's not anything amazing but it's just it's really honest and it's uh, really raw and I think Jack Nicholson especially just gives a really amazing performance. Yeah, I agree. Um, as I was rewatching this, I was thinking, man, uh, for a while I was like thinking, you know, that Neil LeBute was inspired by uh, Mammoth. But I think like this has to be Neil LeBute's favorite movie because <laughs> in the company of men and your friends and neighbors is very similar to carnal knowledge and it's you know a very streamlined portrayal of you know people being narcissistic and you know it's also about power you know forcing your will on another person and you know it's you know it's called carnal knowledge but sex is kind of like just the intermediary between like relationship dynamics and how people tend to want to you know control one another through you know their sexuality or and I also think, like, what's really interesting uh, is, uh, you know, again, his aesthetic is very simple and obviously the polar opposite of something like Catch-22, but there's a lot of, uh, like, silhouette kind of shots to show these characters. Because one thing I've been very aware of lately, especially while watching Breaking Bad, is lighting and why one character is in the dark and one character is in light or why there's silhouettes or something like that. I've been noticing that more and more. And... I think that's really effectively done in certain moments. Uh, and I, I, again, like you can tell that he's a, a, a theatrical director because there's a lot of interesting blocking going on, like the scene at the cocktail party. Uh, you know, we, we see, uh, you know, Candace Bergen and Ar- Arthur Garfunkel together. That's and really a Jeff- great sequence. I completely agree. It's one of my favorites in, in the entire movie. Uh, it's also very relatable in that, <laughs> like that sort of, like you said, naivete about your sexuality and, you know, just trying to connect um, at that point in time, even though you're not really good at it. Uh, I think Art Garfunkel really plays that very well. Um, and, yeah, like you said, too, it's it gets very Virginia Woolf-esque later on. Um, and the, the scene with uh, Candace Bergen and her laughing is also really special, I think. Um, I, I don't know. I think it's a really interesting, again, portrayal of relationship dynamics and how self-loathing just sort of clouds everything and self-doubt tends to externalize when, you know, things aren't going the way you want them to. Uh, and, yeah, like, it's the performances are great all around. For me, this succeeds where Closer fails. That's how I think of it, too. Absolutely. Yeah. See, perversely, I, I perversely, um, I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I actually really like Closer a lot. Um, I mean, there, you know, it's basically a variation on, on the themes of this movie. Um, Closer, I love. Um, but Carl Nog, I think, is one of his better films too. Um, like I said before, one of the other things that you know he saw he yeah, Nichols is someone who really needs like a really good piece of material to work with, and you know we got the script by Jules Pfeiffer which is a, a great piece of writing. And what I think is that, you know, we were, you know, we were joking about Working Girl as being sort of like, you know, like this, this, this dated thing, whereas 
Um, a thing like carnal knowledge, I mean, what's great about that is that, as, as we kind of hinted on before, is that even though it takes place 50s, 60s, and 70s, I mean, the ideas and the themes of that movie are just, you know, you know, there are, are, you know, are just as, you know, viable today as, you know, as back then, and that's why, you know, that, that movie works uh, still, it's still a very powerful film today to, to watch because, you know, all the ideas, I mean, it's not, it hasn't really dated at all. Um, I think my, my only, the, the, the one thing that kind of like keeps it from me is, you know, from, from really being truly great is the fact that I, I can't quite get around Art Garfunkel. Um, I, I just keep thinking of like, you know, because, you know, because I mean, granted, because, you know, on the other hand, you know, Anne Margaret and Kenneth Bergen weren't necessarily thought of as like world class actresses at that time either, but both of them are great. I mean, Nichols is really, Nichols is always really good with actors. Um, and Art Garfunkel, I mean, he does, you know, probably the best performance you could, possibly get off Art Garfunkel, but you have, like, Nicholson, you know, acting up a storm, you got Candace Bergen, you got Anne Margaret both being powerful, and then you got Art Garfunkel just being sort of adequate. It, you know, for me, it's just a little bit of a of a vacuum, and I just keep thinking, you know, man, if you know, if you could have gotten, like, someone like, you know, John Voight or something like that to play that part, you know, how much how much more, you know, how much more interesting would that have been? But, I mean, it's still, a, it's still definitely one of his better films, and, uh, and, and, and if I and if I say I like Closer better, it may just be just because uh, when I saw you know when I saw Closer, I was seeing it you know is it, it was a more fresh film. Whereas Carl Knowledge, you know, I had already you know I'd heard so much about it ahead of time before you know because it came out when I was one or something like that. So you know I'd read about it enough, so I so I had already had sort of like you know, pre digested for me in a way before I saw it. Whereas Closer, you know, I you know it's in, you know it. It was a, it was more of a fr- it was a theoretically a fresher experience, and you don't really have you don't have like sort of like the the weak link in the cast like you do with Art Garfunkel. But again, not to, not to, not to say that Carl Nod is not worth watching. It's a great film, definitely worth worth checking out, and definitely one of his better films. Uh, I do I, I did find myself wondering like Art Garfunkel in Catch Twenty Two makes sense because that cast is such a crazy ensemble and right. it's all part of the milieu, milieu of of just sort of trying to represent and sort it's of so the big time. that no one person can you know it, it, it it's so it's such a large cast and I mean uh, a, 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 I mean he's not he's he's like one of the lesser lights in that one too but he's not in it enough where he can really affect it one way or the other he, he, you know there whereas. With a basically a four character piece like Colonel Knowledge, that can kind of you know weak link can hurt it a little bit. Have you have you ever read anything about uh, why Nichols made that decision? Because I I would love to hear what Nichols had to say about a, a film that basically has like a cast of five people. Uh, why he would you know uh, make one of them uh, Art Garfunkel? <laughs> I I guess he just you know he saw you know saw him on Catch Point Two and thought. That's the guy we don't need. You know, for, forget that. Forget that short balding guy he sings with. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe he thought that Paul Simon hogged a little too much of the credit for the Godfather and thought, hey, you know, he, he thought he's going to tip the balances or give him a breakup or something. I don't. I, I honestly don't know. It's it, it's a bit weird. I mean, and again, Garfunkel's not awful. I mean, he's just he 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 just you know when you have everyone else there, he just kind of. You know, inevitably, sort of like you know, fades and you know, fades from 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 view a little bit. And I just think you know, if you'd gotten someone like you know, John Boyd of that time, uh, I, you know, to name like one obvious example, I just think it would have been a much stronger performance and a much stronger film as a result. 
No, I, he seems I, to pull off introversion pretty well, I think. Like, he's, you know, kind of socially awkward, so he's not going to really call attention to himself very well, you know, throughout. Yeah. And I think, I think, I mean, I don't think he's awful either. I mean, it w- definitely it's, you know, it would be interesting to think of somebody else, but for for what he does, I, I think he's fine, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, he's I, not bad. He's just, you know, he's not Nicholson, he's not Anne Margaret, and he's not Candace Bergen in, in those roles, you know? He just kind of gets blown off the screen, I think. And, I mean, be, even beyond the sort of, like, you know, playing, like, you know, the, the quieter, more introverted type, I mean, there's st- he's still kind of getting out-acted all around. I, 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 think it's, I think it's lucky that... I think he's most suited for sort of his character in the first act. Um, in the in later acts when he, like yeah. him and Nicholson are sort of drinking and he's talking about his marriage or whatever and uh, like he he seems way less confident he seems way less suited so I think it's I think it's good that he sort of fades out of the movie yeah. <laughs> he'll kind of a slow <laughs> slow fade out as he sort of get starts to fit his character less and less I will say now both these guys uh, said something I'm not sure I quite agree with which is that it, it hasn't really aged I would say one thing that actually really struck me about the movie was, was now you know like I said broadly. You can definitely relate to these different stages uh, of of sexuality or whatever, um, you know, in, in people's lives. But I would say that one of the things in the movie that feels very much of its time um, is that is sort of there's a lot of uh, sort of horror Madonna uh, going on. Uh, a lot of the the sort of uh, the idea that a sexual woman cannot also be uh, the woman that you talk to and the, and the woman that you talk to can't also be the sexual woman. And if they try to be both, then they'll be punished. I mean, obviously I'm sure there's still a fair amount of that going on, but I think that was, that is much more feeling. Uh, I, I feel like honestly, that's sort of the point of the movie is as it explores these eras, it explores sort of uh, how, um, it explores specifically what sex was like in the 50s, 60s, and yeah. in the 70s, and that way it feels purposefully not not fl- not in a way that makes it flawed, but kind of purposefully dated in that sort of that opening conversation over the opening credits, where it's just like, I, or it's just like I didn't want to date her because she let because she wouldn't because she wouldn't put out, but then the girl other girl put out, so I wouldn't date her. Like I feel like that was very specifically trying to be dated and very much of its time and. When that movie came out in the 70s, I'm sure it's like it was it, it feels. But now I feel like we're little we're fairly departed from sort of that 50s thinking. Like, obviously, not, not all the way. Not, not all the way. As, as you know, it's by, you know, Miley Cyrus, you know, the whole Miley Cyrus thing where, you know, she, <laughs> where, where, where she got slammed. But, you know, no one said anything about, you know, what's his name doing the exact same stuff. No one, no one got, you know, everyone was calling. I mean, you're, granted. You're not gonna, you're, you're not gonna find you're not gonna find any arguments that sexism sexism and misogyny is dead from me. Sort of specific dynamic felt feels more of that time than it does now. The Miley Cyrus thing has no no shortage of fucking context to sort of unpack, uh, even outside of oh a, a young girl is act is acting sexual or whatever. Let's let's shame her. Like it's. There's a lot of stuff going on, but like I just, I, and I, again, I'm not saying it's completely gone, but I feel like that movie, especially in that opening, you know, dialogue in that first act, like light leans on that so heavy as being the point. Yeah. Whereas I don't think that is necessarily such a deciding factor 
um, anymore. Well, was that pre-sexual revolution? And yes, women absolutely. That's, yeah. my, that's yeah. my point, is that it's very much about the eras, and therefore yeah. it is purposefully dated, because it's about the dates <laughs> that it takes place. <laughs> um, that, I mean... Uh, whoa. The, now, the third act is almost more of a, uh, an epilogue than it is a full uh, sort of a thing as, as they're in the 70s. And as Jack Nicholson has a very, has pay, you know, pays prostitutes to, to, be very, to be a very specific thing for him, which is simultaneously degrading and, and actively degrading him. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it sort of, he's sort of fallen down the rabbit hole of of needing women to meet his perfect needs and not compromising at all to the point where it all just becomes prostitution to him. But, uh, what I would, I would, I would be curious to say, cause they're, they're quite different and they're both really good in their own ways of the sort of second and first and second acts of the film. Uh, which, which do you prefer and why? Um, it's tough. Like, I think the first one, um, you know, maybe it just because, I can sort of relate to that dynamic of, you know, having a friend who is really like, uh, you know, outgoing and can easily, uh, you know, attract women and get them interested in him. And you're too you know, kind. Sort of you're too kind. <laughs> That's exactly what I was getting at. Um, you know, like, like just I guess on a personal level, like you know, just the the the, the first act is is something I know that has happened throughout you know, my life and had different experiences like that. Whereas, you know, this, the, the other act, you know, the final act is, is like you said, Virginia Woolf-esque and gets really, really loud, um, in, in, a, in an effective way. Cause we're sort of seeing the uh, downfall of Jack Nicholson's character. But, um, you know, I, it still, it, it leaves a really, uh, heavy emotional impact in terms of like we're seeing everything fall apart, but uh, I, I do like the, the sort of quieter conversational. I mean, I love the the, the credit sequence. You know, getting getting to hear dialogue like that, uh, is, it feels very real to me. And um, just how things progress with uh, Susan um, Candace Bergen's character, I think, is possibly like my favorite progression. To watch. It's, it's actually kind of funny now that I think about it. The opening dialogue of Colonel Knowledge almost feels like a fade out from Catch Twenty Two, where they're talking about a Catch Twenty Two involving <laughs> like women that they wanted to be with. Very appropriate. Yeah, um, Peter. Um, I think I, from a personal standpoint, I probably relate more to the 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 the, the, the first act. But um, from a dramatic standpoint, I, I, I have to I, I really actually like the, the the ending stuff with with Nicholson with his sort of like fall from his you know sort you know his his you know womanizing plateau and all that. Um, I just find that I just find that you know from intrinsically more interesting dramatic you know from a dramatic standpoint. But from a personal standpoint, I probably recognize you know I, I recognize more of the stuff in the early going. It's 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 really fascinating. Uh, also, structurally speaking, uh, uh, the same way that Catch Twenty Two, the way that sort of slid from comedy into horror um, unexpectedly, was was so powerful for me. Um, there's this, there's Carnal Knowledge has an interesting structure where slowly Jack Nicholson just consumes the movie, and he mm-hmm. just and like the so the opening, you know, the first act 
is an ensemble, sort of, and Art Garfunkel might even be the lead uh, in that first in that first act, uh, if only because he's sort of the first person that we're led to identify with. Um, and you know, it's it's you get more of Candace Bergman getting being a full full rounded character, and more of her, how she feels, and Art Garfunkel, and then slowly Art Garfunkel gets pushed out of the picture, and everyone else gets pushed out of the picture, and until the end, uh, you know, it's just Jack Nicholson, you know, telling a prostitute what to do and yelling at her when she gets the words wrong, like that. That to me is that to me is a really interesting. Uh, uh, dramatize or uh, an interesting uh, representation of his own sort of slide into uh, being completely unable to connect to anybody. But it's so. It's, but what makes it so fascinating to me is it's not telegraphed at all from the first act uh, because he is not yet such a monster <laughs> that that you think that's where it's going to go. Whereas uh, a lot of a lot of similar movies about someone's rot, the rise and fall of someone, uh, they can feel almost a little tedious because. You you know you you absolutely know where where Scarface is going at every at any given point. You absolutely know okay this is the apex. He's lying in the tub and now it's all going to start to go downhill. Like uh, it's so predictable. Whereas Colonel Knowledge, the structure is only really uh, apparent in retrospect. It's really fascinating to me. It's something I only actually just realized I, now that I'm looking okay, back. But on it. Yeah. which makes it a lot more interesting. Almost it almost makes it more interesting seeing it the second time than the you know the first time actually. Yeah, when once you know that where this movie is going to go and that it's going to be about, because I mean I'll be honest, like Jack Nicholson, there's always this air of danger to him, and he's really, I mean, there's a reason he became such an icon and movie star, and that's because he's fucking fascinating to watch on screen. There's always this energy to him and this danger and this unpredictability, and this, uh, and but he is like charming. In that first act, like he yeah. he's a little he's a little loathsome, but at the same time, like as an antidote to uh, you know as as an antidote to Art Garfunkel's like just wet blanket nebbishness, like I don't know, we please yeah. Well, well with, with Nicholson, I mean, you know, you know, you you're, you're, you when you're watching him, I mean, you're kind of you're you're kind of getting into it because you're feeling like you, he's kind of you know, you're kind of getting away with something with with him. Whereas if a actor who wasn't able to sort of like you know be you know this this charm, you know this charming monster. I mean, who didn't have like that sort of innate charm? I mean, it would be just it would be horrific all the way through. But by 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 having someone like Nicholson who can, you know, say you know do all these things, but at the same time still have the you know, you know sort of like you know lure you in with his with his with his massive charm. That just adds another level to it, which makes it all the more interesting when he becomes like this complete. Um, I don't think monster, but you know what? what you know when 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 the stuff that when the third act kicks in, that just makes it you know all the more you know sort of like you know disturbing and heartbreaking in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, because as an antidote to Art Garfunkel begging for hand jobs, like like oh my god, like thank God that like you know if you're looking at it from Candace, and at a certain point in that first act, Candace Bergman is sort of the the point of relation, which is why that scene where she's laughing is so fascinating. Um, because yeah. it, it sort of simultaneously it pulls you in and pushes you away because it never quite lets you inside of her head. Uh, but like, uh, as an antidote to that, you're you know relating to her. You're just like, thank God Jack Nicholson has come along. Thank God someone who's charming and exciting <laughs> and and all that it can come along. And it's really fascinating how Jack Nicholson can play the character acting on the same motivation. Uh, Pretty much in, throughout the entire movie, 
Um, but the way that the, the way just it just in the change of context, uh, it changes so much of what you think about him. And, you know, in the context of, you know, him between him and someone who's just too quiet and mild mannered to ever make a move like you're going to always go for him. And that's why, you know, that's that's the kind of person that a lot of you know younger you know people go for is the more exciting, aggressive one. And that's why that's why so much. So much dating in your, you know, your like late teens and early twenties is so crazy and and messy, and it's because that's, you know, the people you're attracted to are the people who are so dangerous. And then, but looking at it from the perspective of this housewife that he's gaslighting and and just verbally abusing, like it just it just feels like he's just you know, a monster. And it, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a really fascinating game that uh, Carnal Knowledge plays. And you know, Mike Nichols is uh, a, I you know. He, you know, I think it can be really easy to say, well, that that's a stage director. And, you know, so he is, you know, so that means that he's not, you know, that means he's less of a filmmaker. And that means he's, and that means if he isn't doing something interesting with the camera, then he's just sort of putting the camera in front of a, a stage and just letting the actors do whatever. But well, he's not, he's not Kevin Smith. You know, no, 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 but, but I, I, I think, I think that goods, Good directors with certain material will get out of the way. I don't think Glenn Gary Glenn Ross would be nearly mm-hmm. as good a film if the director was Brian De Palma. You know, like that just would not be the right fit for that material. <laughs> oh, no. now, now, Peter, you may disagree because I know no, you. No, 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 fan, no. no, no I, I, I agree with you on that. Um, no, I'm not saying that. You know, Mike Mike Nichols is is, is an uncinematic director. I mean, most of the you know for most pretty much most, all the movies that he's done since then. I mean, the style that he's chosen has been appropriate for the material that he's working with. My only sure. gripe is that, you know, he hasn't, like, tried to, like, sort of, like, expand his range in the way that he did with Catch-22, or to, and, and, and except for with the, with maybe the exception of Angels in America. Yeah, I, he hasn't I, been as audacious. Yeah. Which is not to say that you know, he, but he, you know, a lot of the stuff he's done when he's been, when he's working with solid material, I mean, has been good. I mean, and he's very good with the actors. I mean, they're all you know well constructed movies. There's nothing you know wrong with the you know the the, the good ones. Um, it's just that you know, I just you know, I think you know, for someone who could put someone who could make something like Catch Twenty Two and who could make something like Angels in America, I my I just wish it you know uh, there were a few other times in his career when he could have done something a little. You know, take taking a couple more risks as a a filmmaker, not to be not like Mike Nichols has to be the next Brian to be Brian De Palmer or something like that, but you know, just try something. You know, just move out of his comfort zone a little bit and try no, something. I, I, I absolutely. Yeah. I was I was trying to direct that at you necessarily. I was directing that more at myself because I will because I will often uh, say, well, it's a it's based on a play and it feels like it's shot like a play. So and I'll and I'll leave it at that. But I think. Like something like carnal knowledge, just the choices that are made, uh, you know, and through the blocking and everything shows that there is actually a lot of art to directing yeah. that more kind of stagey film. And I, I think I think also something that should always be said about artists is, you know, we're relatively young people, <laughs> and uh, we, you know, uh, you know, we, we're catching up on, you know, largely when we're looking back at at older, you know, directors' work we're catching up on their oeuvre sort of all at once and we're sort of experiencing it within extreme time collapse. But the, the, the fact of the matter is like Mike Nichols was 40 when Colonel knowledge came out. He's a, you know, he, you know, filmmakers get old and then they get comfortable and they, you know, he, and if you, you know, if you, you know, watch the graduate and you watch catch 22, 
um, or you listen to his comedy, it's clear that so much of the fire that sort of, uh, you know, drove him was sort of that countercultural, you know, movement that, that, you know, that, that sort of thing that came to a head at the end of the 60s. And, you know, that once that was no longer relevant, it's almost like it, you can't expect so much of a director once they're <laughs> over. Like, it, it, I, 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 I often think that even though obviously Robert Altman's work is so hit or miss and, the, and, the, and it varies so much, it's, I almost like that Robert Altman never got comfortable <laughs> and that yeah. Robert Altman uh, never had so many hits that he could just do whatever he wanted because staying, hung staying hungry was so important to him being an interesting filmmaker. And I think someone like Mike Nichols, uh, you know, he taking on sort of Oscar ready projects like Silkwood or, or, you know, pleasers like, uh, you know, working girl or, or, you know, like I, I think, I think he is probably just, he he just sort of settled into a, a you know a rut, which is which is he earned, I would say. Except, uh, you know, like to, except the sure. weird thing is that you know two of the best things he's done in 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 recent years um, were a were both based on stage plays, and b he did both of them for cable. Oddly enough, uh, where, where the limitations are even greater, uh, which were Wit and uh, Angels in America, and both those are based on plays. But I mean, there at no point do you feel like you're watching. A, a you know you know a, a a stage play you know turned to a film and again as I said Angels America is as is in its own way as audacious as Catch Twenty Two and that's much later in his career and when you know it, and I just wish that you know at some point or you know between those two that he could have done a little you know things a little more creative and not and not just sort of like you know settle you know Dana oh, Dawson you know it might have even worked you know might have even worked. Well, no, no, it wouldn't have worked. I, I take that. Uh, so, so, I, so I'm interested. I have not, I have not actually seen Angels in America, nor am I terribly familiar with the stage play. I'm obviously familiar with the subject matter, but what do you think it was about that that reinvigorated him? Uh I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I, I think it was like you know, like the, the right, the again, like the material was so strong that I think you know it, and I think, and that was another thing where like people thought, oh, you, there's no possible way you can make a movie out of this. You can you can do anything with this because it's just too ingrained to uh, the you know it, it's previous you know, it's previous form like you know like Catch Twenty Two no one could see how you turn that book and with Angels America you can only see it as a play and I think there's just something about I I don't know what it was but something about that sort of like you know must have for once you know sparked something that made him think you know I really want to I really want to take a shot with this he got the you know another brilliant cast and he just decided and maybe it was a fact that you know he was doing it for cable and the fact that he was a, I, but I think part of the thing the reason that it worked is that he, it was like a two part thing on cable so he wasn't trying to telescope it all into like a two two and a half hour thing so he was able to like you know sure. move it out and let it breathe and all that and because uh, it wasn't going to be like this huge you know studio project, you know, studio film that was done for cable, I think he was able to, because it was going to be cheaper and all that, I think he was allowed a little more artistic freedom, than, and they, they knew that if, it, that if it didn't work, I mean, it was still going to be seen by a lot of people, and he didn't have to worry about, you know, the, you know, like the opening box office week, you know, the opening box office weekend as you would with a, a typical film, so I think he, in that way, he was sort of freed from, like, those constraints, and I think that, you know, sort of, like, invigorated him to a degree. And it's interesting. I mean, I wish I could have rewatched Angels in America again. I hadn't seen it since it was actually on HBO, and I remember being really moved by it. But um, I want to transition, since you mentioned Wit. I watched that for the first time today, 
And uh, I have an affinity for films about facing death, as a lot of people know, from Fearless, Synecdoche, New York. So I had a feeling that this would affect me, and it, it, it certainly did. I... What can I say? Because, like, Emma Thompson's extraordinarily good in it. Um, you know, we get to see her experience, her cancer treatment in a very interesting way. Like you mentioned, there's, you know, it was based on a play, but he does, you know, employ some cool techniques like cutting back and forth between past and present. Like her past self is in the present environment and the present self is in the past environment to where like she's observing herself in a way but that's that's not done in kind of like the traditional sense where she's actually like outside you know right of, of herself and looking in but she's actually integrated into the scene and you know there's just she seemed like he seems to do the breaking the fourth wall at really emotionally important moments you know and it's not just like a monologue because I, I i honestly thought for a while that it was like mostly just her talking to the camera about what she's going through and there is some of that but as it goes along you know she becomes uh more unhealthy and there's a lot of uh really realistic portrayals of what it's like to deal with uh, a life-threatening disease and that's something i know a lot about and there there's not necessarily like a whole lot of levity in this it's really hard to watch and the dramatic punch of what she's going through is just really effective but I, I like the small intimate character studies and it sort of really gets to the core of why we need to open up rather than be distant because her her, her former you know pre-cancer life was just her being emotionally cut off and she sort of goes to realize like throughout all the people that she's encountered you know and the nurse and the doctor that opening up is actually what is making her feel more in touch with you know humanity and i i I think it's a beautiful movie and uh, i i think the only thing patrick you would find annoying because i remember you mentioned this when we reviewed jerry there is a twinkly piano piece that plays throughout most of the movie and it's definitely done at you know emotionally uh, you know, appropriate times, but like I don't, I didn't think it got in the way. Like I know that scores are often used to, you know, tug at the heartstrings and make sure you cry, but uh, if it wasn't too overt, but I just it was the exact same piece from from the opening of Jerry, and I was like, wow, this this seems to be uh, <laughs> the go-to uh, instrumental for really uh, intense emotional experiences in, in film. But like, like you said, Peter, I think he, he adds a lot of cinematic flourishes, even if they're subtle ones, to make it not feel like you're just watching a play. Yeah. I've had to make peace with bad scores. <laughs> like, that's just sort <laughs> of... I've got to deal with, I gotta deal with sh- shitty scores sometimes in good movies. Uh, so uh, I'd be all right with that. I'm, I'm interested. It's also the only film that Mike Nichols, I mean, it's adapted from a play, but he adapted it himself with Emma Thompson. And it's the yeah. only writing credit he has other than uh, a short film, he, like from 1967. Definitely check it out. It's one of my favorites. Anything else we want to bring up before we uh, come to a close? Uh, we're, not, we're not going to go big on The Fortune or Guild Alive. Guild oh, Alive. I would have liked to have seen that actually. Guild Alive. It's Guild Alive. It's yeah. yeah. 
I, well, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Gilda Radner as a as a comedian. I don't think she's particularly funny. I think she seems very sweet, and I think I would like her <laughs> as a yeah, person. I, but, no, I, I I like her. I like Gilda Radner a lot. It's just it's basically it, 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 the the stage show she did uh, when she was off Saturday Night Live. It was just basically a bunch of her characters like Roseanne, Roseanne the Dancer. Just a bunch, a bunch of you know sure. sketches with her, and it's just like indifferently filmed. Uh, it's literally like sort of like you know plunk the camera down. And, and, and film the stage. I mean, the, the only high point is, you know, her singing a song titled, Let's Talk Dirty to the Animals, and which, <laughs> but it, but it's, 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 re, it's, it's not that good. And the fortune is, is, yeah, uh, fortune. The Cullen brothers are a big fan well, of the fortune. The, the, for, the fortune is, is sort of interesting because, you know, because of the first time, you know, Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson are together. And I mean, some of it is really funny going in, but the problem is, is that, and I guess this is the problem with the actual production, is that the woman who wrote the the screenplay, with Carol Eastman, who actually wrote Five Easy Pieces, apparently never finished the screenplay. Oh wow! So there's like, there, there, so just when you think the third act is about to kick in at like the ninety minute point, the movie ends. Huh. So, it, so, 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 I mean, it, it's got some fun, it's got some funny stuff, and I mean, Nicholson and Beatty, you know, and Stocker Channing is the, 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 the it takes place in the twenties, and there are two con men, at, who, and uh, one of them marries uh, Stocker Channing, who's like a basically like a, a, a Kotex heiress, and 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 but the plot is that they're going to kill her and and abscond with her money, and basically it, it's. It's not hilarious. I mean, there's a couple of funny things, but I mean, it's one of these films where like you have to know the intricacies of the Man Act to hmm. to, to get all the humor, and you know that's not exactly the most hilarious subject I you know for a movie. Um, so it, it's more it's more of a curiosity, and of course it was a huge disaster when it came out. Uh, it, it was kind of like sort of like the Ishtar of its day almost, and it, 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 I think Mick Nichols didn't direct another movie except with the exception of the Gilda Radner thing. He didn't direct another movie for like. Eight years Five after years. that, you know, until uh, Silkwood, because oh yeah, with, yeah. With except you know, not counting the, the Gilda Radner thing, right? Um, so it's it, it's a curiosity, but it's not a very good movie. Uh, I, I would like to. I I like Hartburton quite a bit. I'm a I'm a pretty I'm a fairly big fan of Nora Ephron's screenwriting credits. I think she. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I think I think she. I mean, it's it's uh, none of it's jaw dropping or amazing, but it's. I think she is good at capturing uh, moments of uh, like just just small intimate moments between people, um, and Hartburn uh, has a lot of those uh, in the sort of the opening in the setup of the film uh, in which uh, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson sort of fall meet and fall in love, and uh, and like there's just they they eat they like there's just a the first time they hook up. They're just lying in bed eating this giant bowl of pasta, watching uh, the brain that wouldn't die, which MST3K fans will mm-hmm. will recognize as one of the funnier episodes. Like, and it's and it's and there's just and and there's just a sequence where Jack Nicholson is delighted in recounting the plot, <laughs> the events that happened in that movie, which is super ridiculous. And but there's a lot in that movie where uh, when you know when Meryl Streep finds out she's pregnant, they all they start trying to sing every song with the word baby in it that they know mm-hmm. uh you know and jack nicholson i mean of course jack nicholson's always good to watch uh though you know his character isn't as as crazy or loud or dangerous as uh something like carnal knowledge i i think there's a lot about it like, like now there's parts of it i hate like for example 
if, if you actually look at the plot, it's only a uh, woman falls in love with a man, marries him, has his baby, and then he cheats on her, and then she leaves him. Like, but they stretch yeah. out that last part where he's, she's cheated on so long with, with so little happening. Um, well, oh, there, there's a fun moment where Kevin Spacey plays a, a street tough who robs her support group, which is kind oh, of weird yeah. because it's, <laughs> it's all Kevin Spacey done up in, like, 80s Hollywood punk. Uh, which is kind of great, but but like for the most part, uh, the the main sort of dramatic uh, climax of the film is really weak, and uh, and it has maybe the worst score I have ever heard. Speaking of bad scores, from Carly Simon. Um, oh boy! It is this one fucking song that just plays over and over again, and it sounds like someone hit demo on a Casio keyboard. Uh, it's so cheesy and so bad and so generic. I know uh, the it, song well. My yeah. mom played it a lot. <laughs> around again. Yeah. Oh I, man. That, yeah. yeah. It's one See, of the for me, Harper. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. Just, it's just one of the. It, it chokes like even moments that I would have liked in the movie. I, I end up hating because of that music. See, for me, the problem with Harper, I, it, it may just have been like when I saw the movie when it came out. It may have just been like the expectations because you, when you think, you know. <clears throat> Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep and Mike Nichols and like there's like this amazing supporting cast and that you were just expecting like this amazing you know this, this, this great thing and then like you said you know some of the early scenes you know between the two of them are 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 nice you know like the the, the singing scene and the the scene with them you know watching the movie and all that I mean some of those scenes are, are really nice but after but it just after a while there's just not much of anything to it. It's just like it's, so. It's not even. It's much bad. I mean, when I was joking about being awful before, I may have been a little sarc- being a little sarcastic. But I mean, huge. You know, considering what it could have been, I mean, I just find, I, I still find it enormously disappointing. I can imagine. I pretty much this, the the big spoiler that happened to me was that I had never heard of it, despite it being Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson together. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, this probably isn't much to it. So I was more pleasantly surprised than anything. Again. Ex- Expectations can say so much. I would not disagree with anything you said there, though, Peter. Though I, I would say I, I did enjoy it quite yeah, a bit. Just, uh, I would say it's more, uh, it's, it's, it's it's more inconsequential. Again, more inconsequential than anything else. Right. You did you and and actually, and Nicholson actually was. Uh, you, you know the story about that that Nicholson wasn't supposed to be in the movie. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know the story. Oh no! Originally, uh, it was Mandy Patinkin. Oh. And gosh. Mike Nick and Mike Nichols started actually. Filmed for I guess for about a week with Mandy Patinkin, and I guess whatever you know what 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 not what not great chemistry that you know Nicholson and, and Streep have I guess it was zero between uh, Meryl Streep and Mandy Patinkin. So uh, Mike Nichols actually wound up firing him and bringing in Nicholson like at the last second. Oh, it's like an Eric Stoltz situation again no. with Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, um, also I. I I do think that I mean it's very simple, but I I think the birdcage is hilarious, and <laughs> that's pretty much all. Like I I think Nathan Lane is amazing in it. Uh, you know, it's just one of those go-to comedies that I can just simply enjoy on a very basic level. That hey, it makes me laugh. <laughs> you know, I was, I was I was blown away that the birdcage was not a Netflix instant. Doesn't that feel like the quintessential Netflix instant movie? Like the kind that was on cable a ton and is sort of light and enjoyable but not substantial. Yeah. Like it feels like the movie yeah. that like most of Netflix instant's library is, um, but no actual birdcage. 
So I didn't. Yeah. I didn't See, Birdcage, I've always had a problem. Birdcage, I've never liked as much as a lot of people do, but it, but it has not not as much to do with uh, what's done with it. As a fact, I never liked particularly like the the sort the, you know, the, the 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 source material. I was never a fan of Lakaja Fall either. There's just something about the story that always that that always just kind of aggravates me about you know how the kid you know comes home to the the, the loving gay parents like ah you you know you 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 have to pretend you have to pretend to be someone else. And they just go along with that. I that's always just kind of aggravated. It, it, so it just kind of like kills the whole movie for me. So I, you know, so yeah. so I mean, you know, the bird. I mean, the birdcage. I mean, it it's done for me. It's done about as well as it can be done. I mean, you have like Hackman and Diane Weister, both hilarious in the film too. But there's just something about the whole basic premise that kind of and and there's you know that's one of the ones that Elaine May wrote. So you got like the, the you know there's a bunch of good there's a good one liners. But the premise of it is just something that, you know, just completely keeps me from sort of like ever really liking the film because the premise is sort of like annoys me on a basic fundamental level that I can't, just cannot get around. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, they're, they're a little hesitant at first, but yeah, they do kind of go along with it pretty easily. But it's worth it just for Nathan Lane's John Wayne impression where he's trying to act all macho. That's some classic stuff. Um, I think we can wrap it up though, guys, and uh, give our top three favorite Mike Nichols films. Uh, Patrick, why don't you go first this time? Oh wow, I never go first. Interesting. Okay, I well, know. Uh, my top three. Uh, number three would probably be Carnal Knowledge. Uh, number two would be Catch Twenty Two, and my favorite, which we didn't really get to talk about, but again, it's one of those movies that's been talked about forever. Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? I think that's, that movie's just like a fucking symphony, and every part of that movie it, it blows me away, and I love the, the photography. Every part of that movie is just astounding to me. So uh, that'd be my number one, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Okay, um, my number three actually is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Uh, I agree. And uh, number two is Catch-22. Number one is Carnal Knowledge, with an honorable mention to Primary Colors, which I would have liked to have rewatched. I remember really loving it when it first came out. Um, so yeah, that's it. Okay, uh, for me, number three would be Closer. Uh, number two, uh, I would say if I can put Angels in America, would that does that count as an happy straight theatrical? Uh, I would uh, count. Okay, I I'll, would count yeah. that. Okay, I'll go Angels America number two, and number one uh, would be Catch Twenty Two. And as one that, you know, I think is underrated, uh, that we also didn't mention, uh, Charlie Wilson's War. That is, yeah, which, I liked which, it. which has got a hilarious Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah, in he's it. amazing in it. He's amazing. Philip, the yeah. first time Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Hanks meet is, I still think about that constantly, is just one of my favorite uh, comedic scenes in any movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I really like when Aaron, when Aaron Sorkin is just trying to do witty banter. Uh, like in those sequences, like that's so good. So I, I Charlie Wilson's War, it, it's kind of I don't like uh, it, I don't like the ending so much. It's not I mean it's not perfect, but I will agree it's worth mentioning and it's it's mm-hmm. worth seeing. Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks again, Peter. It was an immense pleasure talking with you. Well, glad to um, be here. Glad that there wasn't any uh, you know angry screaming at you for this episode, so you're in luck. <laughs> well, I didn't mind the angry screaming as much as the angry screaming for someone who hadn't seen half the movies. Oh, well. I'm sure uh, I'm sure he was a big fan of Passion. Yeah, I'll have to find out. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, anyway. Uh, uh, so, so um, 
where can we read more of your work, uh, Peter? Um, you can read me at uh, efilmcritic.com, and you can actually start reading me now every once in a while at rogerebert.com. Oh, great. Congrats on that. That's awesome. Actually, i got an interview with Brian De Palma in there now, so... Ooh, well, i got to read that. <laughs> um, and you can find me at... Uh, where am I again? Twitter? Instant Gym, uh, Letterboxd, Instant Gym, and uh, of course, uh, feel free to send us an email anytime at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. I would really love if we kept this uh, uh, Peter and Matt <laughs> rivalry going on forever. <laughs> um, I want I want the De Palma episode to never die. I want it to overshadow. I want it to just cast a shadow over everything we ever do on this podcast. Um, uh, I'm of course at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. Uh, you know I write for the blog directsclubpodcast.com. Uh, I have a viewing journal which I update very infrequently, and I should do more often at uh, Martha, Martha, Martha Marcy. NashandYoung.wordpress.com. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, I'm sure I do other stuff. Um, eh, no, if I do anything else, I'll just put it on the uh, website. So just directors club, uh, directors club podcast.com. Our next director is someone I'm not as familiar with as Patrick is, so it's going to be really fun. Uh, we don't have a guest lined up yet, but uh, hey, we'll oh, be back in a couple uh, weeks. I got, I got a couple potentials. Uh, cool. So, uh, so the next director is going to be Russ Meyer. Yeah. Uh, oh, very Russ about. Meyer. He's 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 a he's definitely a favorite of mine, and he's not necessarily the world's greatest filmmaker, but he is probably one of the most interesting ones. So he's I imagine awesome. a lot of good conversation will come out of that. I interviewed him once. Oh, really? One one, one of the prouder one of the prou- seriously one of the prouder when they re-released uh, Faster Pussycat about a couple like in ninety five ninety six. I mm. he came to town and definitely an experience. I can imagine. Great. Michael well, Russell. Looking forward. Okay. I'm looking forward. I'm definitely looking forward to catching up with his filmography. So it's going to be a lot of fun in a couple weeks. Yeah. So thanks everybody for listening and uh, join us for the Russ Meyer episode coming soon. Thanks again. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. <laughs> bye. Man, he, when he starts watching the the uh, the porn, oh my god, he just like shut it off! Shut it off! <laughs> <Get> it off! <laughs>